Okay, uh, commenting on the death of Steve Jobs, you're quoted to say, I'm not glad he's dead, but I'm glad he's gone. Well, I, I think the same thing was said about the mayor of Chicago about his Something similar, yes. yes. something similar. I, I have, tried to quote that. <laughs> I didn't quote it exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I posted an extra okay. correction. Well, well what's, what was wrong with him? You mean the ideology? Steve Jobs figured out how to build computers that were prisons, jails for the user, and how to make them stylish and chic. Which so makes that him you, a genius. Which well, does make him a genius. it made him an yeah. evil genius. Yeah. He did harm to the world because he convinced people to rush to stores saying, put the handcuffs on me. I'm recording. I'm going to do it with Audacity instead of that other software oh, this why? time. I don't know. I think it's going to be fine. You sure? Nope. <laughs> okay. Here goes nothing. Hi, Squares, and welcome to another episode of Square Waves FM. Yay! We're your hosts, Brian and Bianca, and today's guest is Robert Menez. Say hi to the nice people, Robert. Hi, all the nice people. <laughs> hi there. You're going to say hi to the not nice people, too? I think we have several of those. <laughs> okay. Hello to all the not nice people, too. Yeah. Hey, pricks. <laughs> <laughs> and today we'll be talking about Linux and other, I think, yeah, a couple of other non-Windows OSs on this list, too. I believe yeah. we do. Because um, I think we were talking about, um, it came from a little conversation. We were talking about, like, I was lamenting a bit how Steam is gaining some support on Linux, but I kind of feel like it could do a little bit better. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Although they're making some real strides with the uh, Steam OS, I know. I don't know whether Steam OS games are implicitly compatible with other flavors of Linux. Well, um, I don't run, yeah, because um, Steam OS is based off of Debian, right. from what I'm reading, and the Steam client is practically supported the best under Ubuntu, mm. according to Valve. Anyway, they're always like, "We recommend that you use Ubuntu to use Steam," and I'm like, "No, I'm oh. going to use Debian because that's my OS." Oh, isn't Ubuntu? Um a derivative or of, uh, it, of Debian? It is. It's actually derived from Debian's um, SID, their unstable branch. What they do is like they freeze it at a certain point and then they stabilize it from there. Like they work on it from there hmm. and roll their stable releases. So it's kind of like semi-bleeding edge, semi-frozen. you know, Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I live on the edge. I, I run Debian SID. I run the unstable rolling release branches on my machines. Oh, nice. Oh, you both live on the edge. Yes. Ryan loves running uh, Windows beta overnight once. Well, not anymore. <laughs> yes, we we we're badasses, aren't we? Aren't we? Oh yeah, yes, betas for the uh, bat for the bad boys. <laughs> they oh, love yeah. watching their computers break and having to fix it. Oh, I got I got fed up with watching that computer break. I for the for many many months I was running the Windows 10, uh, the Fast Insiders Ring, which was there's like the fast ring, the slow ring, and then the the gold ring. So there's like the two betas and the gold ring. So I was doing the, it wasn't quite nightly, but for a while they were releasing builds every week or so. I think they're about at that rate right now, but it was extremely stable for me except for a few quirks. But then I had this one issue where my computer would blue screen when I would quit a game. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a big fan of like the hard crashes. I've, I've lost a hard drive that way before. I don't know if it was the a same. A hard drive? Try several. Well, I've lost several, several hard drives over the years, but I don't think... Ah, Windows must hate you. I, well, I don't think it was, had to do with Windows necessarily, I think. I don't know. It was probably my own fault. You messing around with the hard drive. No doubt. Probably. I mean, I've never had a 
The only times I ever had a really bad hard drive crash came from the brands that I bought. Like I used to have the worst luck buying Mac store. So mm. last Mac store drive that I had was in a 300 gigabyte external. Mm-hmm. And when the enclosure itself failed, basically the, like it stopped transmitting. Like I could not connect to USB and get the drive to show up on my computer anymore. So I ripped open the enclosure. I pulled out the drive and I stuck it into the computer itself. Uh-huh. The drive itself died. Oh, geez. Took all my stuff with it. Oh, that's horrible. Oh, yeah. that's the worst. It missed its cozy little hard drive sleeping bag, I guess. Yeah, and it's like, I cannot survive out in the wild. Goodbye, cruel world. Yeah, you <laughs> took the snail out of its shell and, oh. and then poured some salt on it. Cruel, cruel <laughs> man. what happened. It's like, snails do not become slugs when out of their shell. <laughs> They're just vulnerable little tights. <laughs> yeah, but um, that was the last time I ever bought a Maxter drive. I, I I don't think I've ever really purchased a brand of hard drive on purpose. I've either gotten Maxter or Western Digital or Seagate or whatever. Does Maxter even exist anymore? I don't think Maxter exists as a separate company anymore. I think they got bought out by somebody. Yeah. Oh, I, think by I Western vaguely Digital. remember them. They made they made the removable hard drives. I went in the um portable mm-hmm. um in the enclosures. Yeah, in the enclosures, <laughs> the ones we used uh, in school. Oh, for school, those were just regular. Those I know, were, but yeah, those were just the only hard time I had Maxter, and oh. I killed like three or four of them in school. I know. Well, when we we both studied uh, computer science in uh, college together, and uh, they one of the requirements for that program was to buy a hard drive, like a, a desktop hard drive, and this one specific kind of enclosure because there were all these lab computers around the campus that would accept only this one proprietary. Uh, size of enclosure so Mm -hmm. because we were always inserting and removing these drives it's not really what a what an internal hard drive is meant for so those things tended to die quite a bit i'm sure i went through two or three of those in my three years yeah Yeah. between having to carry them to and from school probably dropping my backpack and Mm -hmm. sitting on it standing on it stepping on it inserting removing and Right. And not co- and not shutting down properly because I got impatient because oh, yeah. the machines were always insufferably slow in the labs. They sure were. <laughs> yeah, I, my my re- my current desktop that I built myself, I put in a Samsung solid state drive and a Western Digital like three terabyte drive, and I've been having great luck with them so far. I've heard that Samsung is phenomenally good for uh, solid state drives and for memory in general. I can I can vouch for them because I have my operating system on the solid state drive, which is lightning fast. Oh, the, mm. yeah, we and both I have ours on with uh, my laptop. Solid state I put well. a one twenty gigabyte solid state in there, and my operating system is on that. Mm-hmm. Super fast. Oh, that's the solid state is probably the best upgrade I ever made in my computer in the history of my building machines. Yes, yeah. I agree. That is is one of the best upgrades we could have possibly done. Because the bet the biggest bottleneck with us with any computer is this, is the hard drive itself, not necessarily the memory or the motherboard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a few years I was jealous of one of my friends who had I can't remember the name of the company if it was Western Digital perhaps there was one company that made ten thousand RPM parallel uh, ATA drives called Raptors. Yeah, and those were super super fast, but I think they had reliability issues and they were like two or three times the price of the seventy two hundred RPM. Drive, but boy, were they fast for the day. I think it was Western Digital that built those. I think so. Plus, they're called Raptor, so I want a Raptor in my... I want to put a Raptor in a box. Mm-hmm. That's wicked. Oh, God. Poor Raptor. I, Don't put I, the Raptor in the box. What does the Raptor ever do to you? think about that. Um, this XKCD with um, the mm-hmm. little compile issues, like you name all your go-to, something <laughs> cute and funny, and then a Raptor attacks you when you compile. Ah. Uh. I love that comic. I did, too. That was one of my favorite ones. I actually printed it, and I put it on my desk. 
I saw a really good, uh, wasn't it an interview? It was like a, Google has this series of like guest speakers who do talks for their employees, and they post them on uh, YouTube. I don't remember what the series is called. Oh, I know the series you're talking about. Right. But they had, what's his name, Randall Monroe? Yeah. He was very amusing and very smart. He's just a, a wildly creative, extremely intellectual, sharp guy. He's very fun to listen to. I hope yeah. he becomes like a professor or something. Someday. I'm, I'm going to have to probably check that out. If you put it into the notes for the show, I'll probably click on it and watch it later on. You bet I will. I tend to compile my notes as we talk, and then I'll stick them all in at the end. So, Randall Monroe, Google Talk. Can do. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, I guess we can also talk about like yeah, choices of operating systems, because I got mine, which is Debian all the way, mm -hmm. even though I have to keep a Mac around because it's the only computer I have that runs at least a recent version of Skype. Oh, really? Yeah, because um, Linux on, um, Skype for Linux has fallen behind like severely, so you can't really use it mm -hmm. for phone calls or much of anything else, but you can text with it. You can oh. still do regular um, text chatting with it, but you can't really use it for calls anymore. Oh, that's too bad. I know that Microsoft, at least in beta, has a web-based version of Skype now. I don't know whether that relies on a proprietary plugin or anything, but no, uh -huh. yeah, Microsoft if it's fully it HTML5, I can do it. I really want to try to keep like as much proprietary stuff out of my computers as I can. Mm -hmm. I had to bite the bullet, though, with my desktop because I bought, um, I bought an Evga graphics card with the NVIDIA chip in it. I've never heard it pronounced Evga. That's great. Yeah. What? Uh, specifically EVGA? a GTX uh. Ti. <laughs> right. And the open source drivers for Debian were awful. They did not give me proper acceleration. In fact, they gave me very slow acceleration. Oh, so you had to use that. I had to enable the non-free repo and use the NVIDIA drivers that were in that. And that actually gave me full, you know, full perfect acceleration because especially for Steam, you know, I need it. Because yeah, otherwise absolutely. everything runs at a horribly choppy frame rate. Well, do you also use Unity or another 3D accelerated X window system? Um, no, I don't use Unity. I use XFCE. Because I like a simple, like I like the simpler desktop like that. Because it's very like quick, simple to the point. Mm -hmm. um, I tried to use KDE five, and KDE five is nice, but it's a little bit too bloated for me. Yeah, they're getting more and more bloated, aren't they? Yeah, I like I like my desktop to be like very streamlined, which is kind of one of the reasons why I'm also a little bit attracted to OSX is that its desktop is extremely streamlined, and you can do everything with it perfectly and quickly. Mm -hmm. Although yeah. it has a lot of like. Uh... Very like colorful, blurbly animations and stuff, like genie coming out of the bottle kind of animation and all that. I found that yeah. kind of superfluous. Yeah, I mean, I don't have I don't have the same thing installed on Linux. I keep everything there very like Spartan. Mm -hmm. But for what it is, it, it runs great. XFCE is actually really good. It's really fast. It's really easy to work with because it's very Windows-like. Mm-hmm. Well, I do want to get more into our Linux discussion. We have a few like uh, pre-topic things to discuss, but um, mm -hmm. leading into the first uh, pre-topic discussion, I w just wanted to probe you. You um, mentioned that you uh, were trying your best to use the open source uh, drivers for your hardware. So yeah. I was wondering if we could kick off our conversation just by asking you about your philosophy around free and open source software. Yeah. Um, my philosophy is basically I try to stick with uh, free and open source software as much as humanly possible. The beauty of it is that I have a lot of cross-platform applications that I can run that work no matter what operating system I'm using. I use LibreOffice for all of my Office needs. I have VLC as my main media player. I have Firefox as my browser. Um, I have a few others like Audacity for audio editing. Mm -hmm. 
um, FileZilla, which is my FTP file transfer system, mm -hmm. and several others. I use Emacs for a lot of text editing and a lot of programming needs, uh, the GIMP for all of my um, art needs, essentially. Anywhere where I can download and read the source code is what I try to use the most because it allows me to basically also use the same program across the board without having to relearn much of anything, especially the user interfaces are all the same across the board no matter where I'm using it. Oh, that's true. That's a very yeah. good point. That's, a, that's definitely a huge point in favor of open source. Oh, sure. Well, especially like for cross-platform at the very least, especially if you use a variety of systems and operating environments. Exactly. Because yeah. like LibreOffice, no matter what system I use it on, the interface is always going to be the same. Mm -hmm. so exactly like this icon does this, that icon does that. I know the pull-down menus are going to be more or less the same. Um, same with the GIMP, same with Audacity, same with Firefox. Um, the other nice thing I like about Firefox too is that its sync feature allows me to install a small set of like extensions and add-ons, mm -hmm. and then every Firefox I go into and I log in with my sync account, it just brings all those extensions and add-ons back over to me. Oh, oh that's so wonderful! I love that too. I uh, I also use uh, Firefox on my Android phone, and when you enable sync, then it remembers all your history and your passwords and all that good stuff as well, which is. Especially nice on a on a phone when you don't want to type stuff in like yeah. that. And it's yeah. great for me when I have to uh, cook and I don't want to have to walk back and forth between the kitchen and uh, my computer to find a recipe. Oh yeah, I love how you can access tabs on one device uh, with using another device. That's handy too. I love uh, Firefox. Well, yeah, and another thing about it too is that I can bookmark. Like I can read something on my phone during the day, and I can bookmark it, and then I can read it later on at home. Mm -hmm. You know, it's another beautiful part about it. Yeah, well, I just love Firefox. I met one of the developers of Firefox. Yesterday, why don't I start to talk about this then? I've spent the last couple of days attending the Free Software and Open Source Symposium, which takes place at uh, the college where I work, Seneca College, uh, every year. I've attended, I think this was their 14th consecutive one. I should bring up the, uh, the schedule so I can remember some of the stuff that I attended. But uh, this is a really, really good time. The purpose of this uh, oh, event is... 30 years of... Three, well, thirty—it was celebrating thirty years of freedom, quote unquote. I think that was the GNU public license. Yep, Ooh, that's cool. Which was Richard Stallman's contribution, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the purpose of this uh, conference is just to bring people together from the vicinity and from all parts. I suppose it's a relatively small conference, three three hundred people or so, um, where people can give talks about different aspects of open source, whether it's about specific computer applications or the philosophy of free software or just about how they've incorporated free software into their workflow. So uh, just bringing up the schedule here, I did attend some really cool stuff. Well, first of all, the, the keynote speakers this year, there was one guy, Mark Sermon from the Mozilla Foundation. He was mm -hmm. a fascinating guy. Very, very, like, believe very strongly about, he's kind of an anarchist, this guy. He reminded me a little bit of Stallman, but a lot less, uh, Offensive in very ways. And, uh, ways. and less authoritarian? So, sorry? Less authoritarian? Much less authoritarian. He was more um, olive branchy. Less too? He was, he was, uh, he, he had a beard, but it was trimmed. Uh, yeah. I had actually met Richard Stallman a couple of months ago in New York City really? at um, an event called Nice Camp, which is a big um, web technologies camp for with, um, a lot of free and open source policy as well. Wow. And he was there with his assistant from the Free Software Foundation, and they were selling books and T-shirts and giving away a ton of stickers. Mm -hmm. And he gave the keynote speech at Nice Camp, which I think is on YouTube. Oh, I've got to see that. How do you spell yeah. it? Is it NYCE? NYC. NYC Camp. Ah. 
And um, the site is nyccamp.org. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. But anyway, yeah, um, I got to speak to him a little bit. And yeah, he's, um, Salman is extremely insistent. He calls it GNU slash Linux. Uh-huh. You do not abbreviate it whatsoever. You have to say the full thing in front of him. Oh, but yes, he's he very picky about you. it. He will correct you. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh. One of the, so, oh, that sounds obnoxious if, if, it gets, if it gets to the point of being redundant. Well, he, um... He, somebody put in one of their slides, uh, one of the organizers of the event put in one of their slides, just a message from Richard Stallman re uh, regarding an infographic that was designed for this event, um, where he was talking about the benefits of open source. I'm seeing if I can find his his angry <laughs> response to that. Uh, he, wouldn't it be faster just to look on your uh, Google Photos rather than through your Twitter feed? No, it was, uh, it, it was something that he had uh, replied to. He, well, he basically said something along the lines of uh, free software is like the antithesis of what I'm all about. I totally disagree with or, uh, open source. Open source only tells half the story. Here, oh, here it was. You're right. Your infographic often says open source, a term which stands for, my, for rejection of my views. That's what he said about the infographic celebrating 30 years of freedom. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's pretty funny. So he's a real idealist, this guy. But uh, we have a lot to thank him for, of course, because uh, thanks to him, we have the GPL and GNU Unix and stuff. Does he call it GNU Linux or GNU Unix? He calls it GNU slash Linux. Okay. GNU. He actually says the slash. He says the slash. Oh, that's so... Uh. <laughs> and, oh, that's it's like cool. his maiden name. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, too, is that... um. He, he actually does, his work habits, as he actually talks about on his um, website, mm. are very true. Because um, while I was, I was doing the photojournalism part of uh, Nice Camp, mm. so I was running around taking photos at the, um, at the booths, like all those monster booths and everywhere else. Mm. And um, Stallman, basically, he doesn't like his photos taken and he does not like it, like, you know, posted anywhere where he doesn't have control over it. Mm. But he was basically there quietly sitting at his booth working. As he always does, he actually uses WGET to fetch all of his email or to fetch pages to read offline. Oh. Reads all of his email, like he just fetches it and then reads it offline and then responds back and sends it out when he's online. That's pretty old school. And his assistant is running the show for him. Wow. Yeah, he really uh, doesn't like doing anything in the cloud, does he? He likes doing everything locally and owning it minute Yeah, by minute. and then when he goes online, he'll just shove everything back up line. That's very interesting. It's exactly what I used to do in the BBS days when I would download... Uh, a quick packet of message-based messages. I would download them. I would dial in. I'd download the messages. I would respond offline, and then I'd dial back later so that I didn't have to tie up the phone line while I was responding. But that's the only reason I did that, but so I didn't have to tie up the phone line. Yeah, well, it makes sense back then. Back in the day. Yeah, back in the day, it makes sense. Now it's kind of... Well, unless you're tying up your cell phone, I don't see how you're really tying up your phone line. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, Stallman is much more of an idealist, so... Yeah, Stalin... <laughs> Stalin, not Stalin. <laughs> I'm sure there are there are similarities. Anyway, yeah. the the two main main key uh, keynotes for this uh, were uh, Mark Sermon from Mozilla, and he talked. He kind of equated open free software and open source philosophy with like uh, the the uh, essentials of being a, a punk rocker, which mm -hmm. was really cool. And he had he started off the talk with this really amusing story about uh, he showed a picture of himself uh, around the time that he graduated from high school and he's wearing, I forget, like a black uh, t-shirt with some punk band on it and he has a cigarette in his mouth 
and he said his school told him that he wasn't allowed to have a cigarette in his mouth, so they, they took his picture out, and so he photocopied his picture and handed it out to everyone, asking them to stick it into their <laughs> into their books. <laughs> so that, that was kind of his analog for uh, patching things in an open source fashion, so that was really amusing. And the, the other great keynote speaker was uh, a lady by the name of Ruth Seal, I think her name is pronounced, and mm -hmm. she was the community marketing manager of open source and standards for Red Hat. Red Hat has a big uh, office. Both Mozilla and Red Hat have uh, offices in Toronto, where we're from. And her uh, talk was awesome. She was talking a little bit more about uh, free open hardware and about uh, maker culture mm -hmm. and uh, hardware that's just accessible by, uh, by anyone to do anything and what it means to be a maker. So these are all uh, talks that uh, will be uploaded at some point to the website for the event, and I'll stick those in the show notes as soon as they do that. It might not be for a few weeks or so. Yeah, uh, I, I would like to watch those, actually. I would really like to see uh, Mark Sherman give a talk. I have never actually seen him give a talk before. He was great. He was, he was really inspiring and very sharp, and he answered questions with terrific authority, and he was very open to, to uh, hearing what people had to say and talking all around them. He's kind of the uh, evangelist for open source. And he was all, what I really admired about Mark was that he acknowledges that the vast majority of people have moved away from Firefox to Chrome. Mm -hmm. And he was talking a little bit about why that might be. He was talking about the failures of the Firefox smartphone, Firefox OS, which was mm -hmm. hoping to be a competitor in emerging markets for like $35 smartphones and talking about how interesting it was that even people in emerging markets who can't really afford a phone, they picked up a $35 smartphone and it didn't conform to their expectation of what a smartphone should be. It had these crappy touchscreens that made it hard to type and they were unbelievably slow and these people from the movies or whatever uh, picture these like incredibly fast, super convenient devices. So they're kind of going back to the, the drawing board with that. But he was very... Uh, he kind of talked about the culpability of Mozilla and how, where they succeed and where they can do better and their challenge in winning back market share or perhaps trying entirely new technologies uh, above and beyond the web browser to see if they can uh, encourage people to use open uh, software and open solutions. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still pretty much like a devoted Firefox guy. I've been a Firefox guy for now. It'll be 11 years, actually, very soon. Yeah, same here. You started out with uh, Phoenix? Um, actually, uh, Firefox .0 Okay, I don't remember which version it was, but it was. I remember they were Phoenix, and then they were Firebird, and then they became Firefox. Then they were so Firefox. Point, yeah, around zero point eight was um, Firefox. I think one was Firefox. I think, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I might be right about zero point eight actually. But they kept picking names that other people had chosen. Okay. Yeah, yep. I, but I, was... I remember like that was the first time I got exposed to Firefox, and coming from Netscape, I, I was like, this feels just like the next step up from Netscape. Yeah, it was based on the source code. Yeah. Netscape yeah. open sourced their, their source code and Firefox kind of ran with it. Yeah. I, I actually liked it a lot better because at the time, you know, there weren't any decent browsers for Linux and I needed something. Oh, so, you've been using it that long, huh, Linux? Yeah, because yeah, the only thing I had at the time was an old Netscape. <laughs> right. And Netscape just became so bloated with the they had mm -hmm. mail clients and they had, I don't remember all the stuff they had, but I, I seem to remember you would install... Netscape on Windows, at least, and you would have, like, five icons on your desktop oh, all of a sudden. Oh, that was ridiculous. Netscape yeah. Communicator and Navigator and... They gave you the browser, the email client, the news reader, I think the web editor, and oh. some other thing. Oh, that's right. Oh, they had, And oh, they were all good the applications. 
oh, there was so much crap you had by the time you were done installing. They did get kind of bloated, but they were all good applications. I remember relying on their newsgroup uh, reader uh, more, more than a few times. Yeah. I mean, like, I wasn't a, I used new, Usenet back then sparingly, but I wasn't really like a huge, huge Usenet user. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I didn't really need the Usenet reader that much. I used to use the, you know, the early web more back then, and I used to still do BBSs while they were still prevalent. Mm -hmm. But the, at the time of broadband, when BBSs just basically went down, that was, that was about it for me. I just went to full web. Yeah, me too. I didn't. I didn't make that much use of news groups. Mostly just for uh, multi-message uh, file or a, a file that would be embedded in many messages. And I yeah. guess I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, mine. Mine was more reading. Like the like the first days when I first started using Linux. Like you know, I started hearing some of the Linux groups on um, Usenet mm -hmm. just to get some advice of how to get certain parts of my hardware. You know, for my old forty six box, how to get them up and running. Mm. Yeah, because I had um I had a really weird video card. I believe it was a, like a chips and technologies that uh, Linux like Linux and X specifically didn't really see or know how to make use of right out of the box. So it took me about two weeks for my first Linux install to try to get X working. When I did, I was like the happiest kid on earth. Oh sure, it makes it a lot easier to to navigate the OS when you have uh, mouse mm -hmm. control. That's for sure. And yeah. But it's also that feeling of satisfaction, like, yay, I got it working. Oh, that's right. And that's uh, that's definitely a feeling that you earn over and over if you are a Linux user, or especially yeah. if you're learning Linux, at least. Yeah. My, uh, I, I guess I could share my first Linux experience here on the show, right? Of course. All right. So um, first time I ever used Linux was I was um, 15 years old. It was mm -hmm. around 1994. Mm -hmm. And my first Linux was Slackware. Oh, that was such a good build. That was a really nice, tight one. Yeah, I got it from Walnut Creek CD when they used to still exist. Mm -hmm. FTP.CDROM.com, right? Yep. But um, I actually ordered the physical CDs because that was a time like they used to send the catalogs and you would order stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, and you get like these nice professionally printed, you know, sets of um, CDs. Mm -hmm. So I got Slackware and I remember it was an early build that had the little head of J.R. Bob Dobbs on the disc. Uh huh. And I spent my summer vacation, part of it anyway, um, doing a dual partition setup on my old 46 with DAWs and Linux. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it was uh, it was getting X running that actually gave me the biggest headache. But once I got it working and I had full 1024 by 768 by 256 colors, I was happy. Oh, that's brilliant. Was that still the Lilo? Uh, well, uh, yeah, the bootloader? This was still back, yeah, this was still the old uh, Lilo days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what um, I learned, I too. I don't even think it was SysLinux at the time. I remember, though, it was kernel version 1.00. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was a We're huge milestone. Old there. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. But getting that and my uh, my DOS setup to be uh, dual running was uh, really the best thing ever. Hmm. Yeah. My, my little hidden tool. Um, do you remember a little tool called System Commander? Uh, was that the command line file manager thing? Um, not really. What System Commander was, was it was one of the original multi-boot tools for PCs back in the day. Oh. Oh, and you could use that for, like, uh, instead of boot disks, couldn't you? Yeah, because what it would do is um, you would set it to be on the MBR of your drive, mm. and when you boot up your computer, it would read System Commander, and it bring up a little menu, and it'd show you all the operating systems that you have installed on your disk. Right. So you just, you know, go through the list, and you pick the operating system you want to boot from, hit Enter, and it boots that OS. Okay. So I had um, System Commander working where I had Linux on the I had Linux on the menu and I had my DOS set up on the menu, mm -hmm. and that's how I used to do it for a while. 
That's really something. That's that's a lot of stuff. I'm sure you had a small hard drive relatively as well. Um, I had a 420 megabyte hard drive. So what I used to do is I used to keep all my DOS games on zip disks. Ah. Yeah. So I, I would install them onto zip disks and I would just put in the zip disk and play them off of that. And they used to run pretty well through that, That's even a, through parallel port. I was about to say it must have been slow. Well, most of the fast, like most of the more intense games really were fat, were slow. Mm. But even games like Wolfenstein 3D and Doom ran fairly well off of it. I guess those games were like a floppy or two at the most, so they they didn't need to load that much off the disc. Yeah, well, um, Wolfenstein, you can all I think Wolfenstein the shareware version you could almost fit on a floppy disc. Yeah, I believe it did come on a floppy on just one. I might be wrong. Yeah, but um, I remember like the like when you got the retail versions, it came on like two, I think, and you had to actually install it to your hard drive because everything was compressed on the disc. Right. Yeah. Oh, uh, those were the fun days, and you used to have to juggle. Um, I want to play this DOS game, but I don't have this much room, so I kind of have to like take something else off the disc oh, and then install it. The yeah. agony of picking and choosing. It's which one of my chosen will live, and which one will die. <laughs> yeah, well, she'll be the chosen one tonight. Yeah, <laughs> Bianca and I messed around a lot with that. At least when we were in college with the dual boot stuff. Oh, I got tired of it after a while because it takes a long time to boot an OS. It was really annoying switching from one to the and other. If you don't know what you're doing, you lose your schoolwork. Realize you have a project due and have to fix everything and stay up on the day of it. You have an exam. <laughs> yeah, you you know from experience that, right? Yeah, I stupidly tried to use uh, partition magic in like one of the early versions. I don't know which version it was in O two. Right. But I tried to use that to create a dual boot from Windows. <laughs> or partition magic. That was right. That was to um, if you only had one partition, it would like move all your data to the beginning of the the cluster mm -hmm. uh grouping or whatever and then it could create other partitions and yeah if like you sneeze on your computer while it's doing that like three hour process you lose everything oh i lost everything the mbr and the file allocation tables and all that yeah stuff. i lost everything so i was trying to put linux on so i could just experiment and play with it at home outside Shit. of school hours oh. and i wound up breaking everything and having to break out my windows xp recovery disk Oh, that's right. Yeah, because Windows just assumes that there's only you'll only ever want one operating system. So and then it's going to be Windows. That's right. Yeah. So if you're going to dual boot, you would put Windows on first and then Linux second. But And make sure that you have created the separate partitions from the outset instead of trying to split it after uh, the fact. Of course, yes. Which I didn't yes. know at the time because I just started uh, my undergrad, which at the time was was actually supposed to be programming and not science. Right. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing you usually plan ahead for. If you buy, get a new hard drive, you usually just... Allocate it all, assuming that you'll use it that way forever. Yeah, except it was before. Before then, I had just bought my uh, proper desktop because they didn't focus on hardware. In my in the in the original program I was in, they focused right. on uh, you know making er making everything look pretty and using a bunch of uh, command line bunch of la command languages. I couldn't understand heads or tails of, which is why I switched. As your programming, <laughs> yeah, one, yeah, yeah. I I never actually ran Windows like ever for an extended amount of time like i dabbled in windows 95 for a little while and mm. i think like the most windows i used extensively was windows 2000 oh yeah that was a really nice lean one what did you like about windows 2000 um well it was actually a lot more stable than uh, 9x ever was oh yes when it actually had decent DirectX support is like that was another plus for me as well is like it actually had good DirectX support so i can actually play like a few games under windows 2000 they all ran perfectly 
Yeah, Windows 2000 was interesting. It was like the same kernel, I believe, as Windows XP would be later on. Yeah, because they're, they're all the NT family. Yeah, exactly. But they were based on NT, so it was always kind of like a business or even a networking yeah, operating it system. Was a, yeah, it was a professional-grade operating system. It oh. was. It was really no frills and very reliable, but for whatever reason, it wasn't supported as long as XP was, maybe just due to popularity or Yeah, that would make sense. XP was more seemed to be more of a popular home system than 2000-wise. Oh, very much so. Probably because yeah. it also had a prettier interface. And I'm just saying, I'm not saying I thought it had a prettier interface, but I'm saying, but I'm thinking, you know, most people probably, when they want to look at their desktop, want a pretty looking desktop. Yeah, they don't was, necessarily care about um, what it can do. They just want to say, look, I'm like, I got a pretty desktop. Yeah, Windows XP had the, I think it was called the Luna theme, yeah. as opposed yeah, to the classic called, theme. Yeah, that's what they called it, I believe. Right, as yeah. opposed to the classic theme, which you could also switch to in Windows XP, and I did for Oh, you used it so time. much until we got, until we got Dark Royal. And then you would use Dark Royal. Oh, that's right, because they had the blue and the green themes and the silver themes, and they were all too bright and too ugly. And then I got Luna, what was it, Luna? There was Luna Dark, and there was another one that they released a theme for Zune. There's a the oh, brand yeah. name we haven't heard in a long time. That oh, was wow. the nicest uh, Luna theme of all. Yeah, so it was, it like, was like, black kind and of like a, a navy or royal blue. Yeah. I remember yeah. that one. That was the best one. And it was, and uh, getting it back after when the big service packs was a pain in the butt because you could I couldn't find it. Oh, that's that was, right. That was the worst part of all. Was losing that one theme. That's right. Oh God, I mean, I, I mean, like, I, I didn't mind like having like the simple theme of Windows 2000 because you know when I needed Windows, it actually did the job really, really well. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like, when I had to do the jump to XP, I'm like, you know, I can't do the Luna theme. It looks too Fisher Price for me, so I just turned it off and put on Classic again. That's exactly the words I use to describe Luna now, too. Yeah, and then um, I found this pro. I found these uh, things like, have you ever heard of this um, company called Stardock? They make like all these Windows enhancement tools. Yeah, yeah. I, I found like a lot of the tools, like the dock and everything else. And I'm like, ooh, I like the OSX look of this. So I actually set up an XP setup for a little brief time using all those tools. So I made it look like really nice um, OSX like. I think Window Shades was that the name of it? Yeah, that was the one. Yeah. And they had one called Cursor XP as well. I used to play yeah. with those all the time. I and remember my, those. those. My computer looked, looked looked like such an idiotic Frankenstein <laughs> because of all the crap I would play with. Yeah, but at fun. least it was your computer, and it was fun. You could customize it. Yeah, I have lots of screenshots of those. I should see if I can find some. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I when I got um I got a Dell uh, laptop in 2003, and it came with XP, you know, built in. Mm -hmm. And I used it for a brief amount of time, and then I decided I don't really need Windows for much of anything anymore. So I migrated it back over to. I tried using Ubuntu because I heard about the you know the hardware friendliness of Ubuntu. Right. But uh, my Dell was literally coming apart at the seams, like it fried like all the hardware inside. It used to get so hot, I used to call it the space heater. <laughs> like you could fry an egg on it, and it burnt through one LCD screen, which luckily it was still under warranty, so wow. I had it replaced. Whoa. But then, like, it fried the USB ports on the motherboard, and it fried the Wi-Fi card. So I had uh, to get like an external Wi-Fi card, oh. and I had to get an external USB uh, PC card. That's like and life support for a dying yeah, and patient. I was using Ubuntu on that mm. for a brief time, and then the whole entire thing finally decided to like fall apart completely. Mm -hmm. Wow, and Frankenstein the, the computer, a life. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that was the end of my Dell affair. Yeah, I I, I have had fantastic success with Dell actually. Um, I've, I've been building computers for a long time now, more than 10 years at least. But uh, before that, I think it was my Pentium 3 was a Dell machine. And I, after I was done using that as a desktop computer when it was too slow to play modern games and stuff and we had replaced it uh, mm -hmm. with a Pentium 4, um, 
I turned it into a Windows 2000 server. Oh, I remember this server. Yeah, it was my web server, and I, I uh, hosted an email server on that. That was fun from a security standpoint. You really had to harden that thing to keep from it to keep it from getting uh, taken over by spammers. Yeah, and I, I do all I kinds of experiments. Like, yeah, I liken the security of Windows, and people ask me, like, what do you think of Windows? And I think, like, I think of Windows as driving a tank made of Swiss cheese. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know what you mean. It was yeah. a, uh, I didn't use Win, uh, Microsoft's Exchange server. I used one called Mail Enable, which was a, a free for personal use um, uh, MMC driven uh, email server. And it was great. It was really configurable. And I made uh, email addresses for myself and for my family. And I did all these throwaway accounts when I wanted to sign up for a service. And I didn't want them to spam me or anything. Oh, I remember these accounts. It was incredible the number of accounts you had for your family. Yeah. Oh, and it, but it was so much work and so many questions. And they just came to you for everything. It well, of course, they. Well, that's when I was living with my family. So, of course, they did. But uh, I had so much fun administering my own Windows server. And that Dell uh, Pentium 3 was extremely reliable. I couldn't believe how reliable it remained for years and years and years. Well, what you did, it's, it, I mean, you weren't really doing anything that required the uh, anything more than just for it to send and receive information. So, and that's mostly just text information. So, of course, it wouldn't be incredibly slow. Yeah, that's true. I think I had Apache on there and the and the mail uh, server, and that was about it. Mm -hmm. I think I had remote terminal services or something as well. A few server. Things I just enjoyed server admin. That was during and right after graduating from college. But it's a different world now. I read a, an unfortunate article that says that the major um, email providers in the world, which are Gmail and Hotmail, they're, they're almost equally popular. Mm -hmm. They will, by default, reject email or put into a spam filter. No, they don't even put it into spam. They just reject and bounce back email that's not from an already established server because it mm -hmm. says that it can't be trusted so it assumes that you're a spammer and yeah. so the article was all about how that's kind of not the way the web is supposed to work the web's supposed to be about doing things yourself and having the choice to host something uh, locally instead of relying on the cloud which is run by some mm -hmm. faceless multinational corporation and has like some geo redundancy thing where your data is on like 45 data centers around the world and they can't even tell you where it is geographically along those lines we actually have a problem like that on nation states where some people who run who use Hotmail will try mm -hmm. and apply using their accounts to join our World Assembly. Mm -hmm. I've talked about nation states in the past about how it's an online game, and because and for some reason, Hotmail either bounces or just sends our emails to straight to their spam filters. Like they don't even and we and they don't even bother whitelisting it and. Our site administrators have uh, several times emailed and contacted Hotmail support to no avail, and they have not whitelisted our site, even though uh. we are a perfectly valid site, and we've been active for over 11 years. Yeah, that's ridiculous. You just yeah. host your that, own mail server, I guess. Weird. That's unfortunate. I, I, I was saying, I'm wondering if maybe that's the... Um, because I remember that Hotmail used to be like their own standalone email service until Microsoft bought them out and turned them into live mail. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. was a Hotmail uh, user before Microsoft bought them. Yeah, so I'm probably wondering if maybe they don't think of like Hotmail as being valid anymore because Microsoft bought them out because I think now it's um, at live.com or something like that. that oh, I think it's at, yeah, it's at outlook.com now, I believe. Or I yeah. think Hotmail still works. Let me try Hotmail it. works. I've seen users with Hotmail at live and at Outlook. 
I, so, all yeah, three I guess are all they, valid. Mm. Yeah, they keep the old domains for like you know people who have probably had like long term accounts. Yeah, yeah. But um, funny thing that I was actually reading about too that Microsoft for a very long time could not convert Hotmail over to their own software because um, Hotmail back in the days was a BSD shop, uh-huh. and for a very long time Microsoft couldn't convert it because they said it just it worked too well and they couldn't really wrap their heads around it. <laughs> mm-hmm. In other words, they, they couldn't they break it running BSD. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I remember Microsoft having trouble with that. In, in fact, I because I was a customer, I, yeah, I'm calling it a customer. I didn't pay them anything ever, but because I had a Hotmail account before Microsoft bought them, I it was an ugly transition when Microsoft had bought them and then finally was going to do some upgrades, which I suppose would have been their migration. The, uh, back in those days, my inbox could hold two megabytes of email, and that's it. All your email that you ever had had to be two megabytes or less which was really rough. That was in the 90s, I guess, yeah. the late 90s. Yeah. But I think um, you could download your email or was it Maybe. Yeah, you could if you had a client and you had, and you and you used your client to access the uh Oh yeah, mail for pop server, 3. Yeah. Then you could download your email and store it and they wouldn't delete it since yeah. it was stored locally and That's right. being text it didn't take up much space. Well, I it wish was I did that. online that you couldn't uh, really store more than 2 megabytes. Yeah, that's right. It was 2, two megabytes of cloud storage yeah. at the time. And then yeah. we didn't even use the word cloud. And I remember then. you're talking about this transition. That was brutal. And I remember it just like it was almost seemed like overnight and everything just felt broken. Oh, well, what happened for me was I remembered reading. I, I used to check Hotmail like religiously. It was my world, I guess. That was that was that an instant messaging. I guess it would have been ICQ back then. Um, maybe. Yeah, it was around the time of ICQ. So Microsoft put uh, a login, like a message of the day kind of a thing saying, we're going to do this kind of a, a migration maintenance from this day until that day. Please avoid using Hotmail during those hours. Uh, and I uh, was too much of a heavy user, so I did something during those hours, and it caused like 80 of my emails to get deleted permanently, and I emailed them about that, and they said, sorry, there's nothing we can do. So I guess they were doing some kind of like a hot swap thing that didn't uh, end up being as redundant and reliable as it really should have been. But uh, those were good lessons for a, a company to learn that would go on to offer so many cloud services in the future, I suppose. Yeah, it's supposed mm-hmm. to. And also, too, uh, beware of the strong, bad treatment of your emails. Deleted. Right. <laughs> That's right. I, I had actually, um, I used Hotmail for a while when they were still like Hotmail standalone. Mm-hmm. But um, going further back, one of my oldest, oldest ones was from a service called Pipeline. Oh, I don't think I know that one. They were an ISP here in the U.S. And um, they were prevailing in like the early to mid-90s. What was and- the, uh, the email suffix, the domain? At pipeline.com. Oh, okay. Doesn't sound yeah. familiar to me. Yeah, that that was like way back in the days. They were like one of the earliest um, web-based emails that I remember. Hmm. And you know they were you know they were very very cheap because I think um, if you use them as your ISP, you actually got a free account, mm-hmm. or you can have like an account without having them as an ISP for like a meager amount of money per month. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So they were our ISP for a little while. So I got a free email account and I used them, and. Then I decided to switch over to um, Hotmail when I saw, like, you know, free, totally free at the time. I'm like, oh, this is even better. I don't have to use, you know, this particular ISP to have an email box. Mm-hmm. So I migrated all my pipeline email over to Hotmail, and I just continued from there. Yeah, I must have changed ISPs, like, 12 or 15 times or so since those days. So I immediately appreciated not having an email address affiliated with my ISP. Oh, I totally, I, I totally agree with you, especially since... Oh, when I, in the nineties, my dad, my dad was the one. I, my dad is the one who usually provided the 
internet access since my mom and uh, mm -hmm. her common law husband wouldn't let me lose their computer as if somehow I was going to break it. Mm -hmm. But my dad's like, here, keep the computer in your room. You got free reign of it. <laughs> right. We both, but so, yeah, we switched ISPs all the time. And then we switched between this one local one, which was pretty reliable, and AOL for those times we got free disk in the oh, mail. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah, a lot of people did that. Yeah. So I had to quickly, I quickly learned that Hotmail was the way to go. Right. And of course, I went through a million Hotmail accounts then because I could never be satisfied with my name. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it was like create once and you're done. That's yeah. right. I, I made the opposite mistake. I chose one and I kept it for like 13 years or something. And there are so many people on my MSN messenger list that I didn't care to associate with anymore by then. I just abandoned it. Yeah, I did the same thing, too, because I had gotten to the same point where, you know, like you have people like you don't really want around anymore. Yeah. So it's like I just dropped the email. And, and that was around the time I went to uh, Gmail. Like Gmail was still in beta when I migrated to it. Yeah, me too. Invite only. Um, yeah, I was. It was still invite only at that point. Yep, yep. same here. Same here. Yeah. So, um, but going back when you mentioned um, AOL disks, the best thing about those, reboot disks. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I used to do. Format them and then just make a boot disk out of them for my games. Yeah, I think I have a, a, a disk uh, caddy or something full of repurposed AOL disks. They became coasters after we were done with them. Oh, yeah, Frisbees. Oh, they actually were coasters for us because we could, because Paris thought that you put. A glass on the antique table my dad inherited from his mother. Mm. Oh, the damn thing squeaked. The thing <laughs> was rattly, but no, you couldn't just place a glass on the table. You had to use these fucking AOL coasters. Oh, that's a nice way to class up your antiques. <laughs> <laughs> 73 oh, hours. Hey, they were good for something, right? right. Yes, they were. Not much they more. Were. But, um, yeah, I, I never used AOL. I never Me used neither. AOL. And everyone in my school is like, oh, we got AOL. What do you have? I have BBSs. <laughs> right. Yeah, nobody was like, what's a BBS? Uh, what's a well? What are all these other things? Oh, the well, wow. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, we had an account on the well for our time, and I actually used to use it quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was fun, too. Like, you can actually have, like, really good talks. I remember we used to have, like, really good talks at the tables there. Like, you know, cool sci-fi fans and everybody, like, and nobody there was like nasty or whatever. Like they used to have like good, like good adult like talks almost. Oh, that's nice. I don't think they had any local numbers in Canada. I think that was a U.S. only thing, so we didn't get to enjoy that. Yeah, but a lot of a lot of really cool people came on there. Like I remember um, big users back in the day. Like um, I believe William Gibson used to be on there, uh -huh. and J. Michael Straczynski was definitely there. Um, what was really cool about J. Michael Straczynski is that he used to have a lot of conversations with Babylon Five fans. Oh, nice. Oh. So That's like, like a you dream. can actually join in and he would be there and you can actually converse with him about like talk about an episode or something that he's writing. Oh, it's that's amazing. Really cool. I think uh, Neil Stevenson has written about that as well. Yes, he has actually. Um, I think it's in um, his book in the beginning was a command line. Right. Yeah. Which I, I actually was lucky. I actually found a paper copy of. Oh, I didn't even know it was on paper. I thought it was just a, an internet essay thing. No, I actually, um, here in New York, uh, I'm going to do a little background. Mm -hmm. uh, here in New York, we have a store called Strand Bookstore. It's a very huge independent bookstore. Mm. It's in Union Square, and their their claim is 18 miles of books, wow. which I'm going to have to probably say is pr pretty much true because that place is wall-to-wall -wall books. <laughs> oh, I wish I could go there. That would be awesome. I'll take you someday. If you guys ever come to New York, I'll take you guys there. Oh, that would be great. But okay, anyway, now, I, now I do want to go to New York. What, for the bookstore? Yeah, exactly. 
You, now you're speaking my language. <laughs> Before okay. I was kind of like, oh, I don't care about the big buildings or the historic architecture. Ooh, bookstore. Okay, I'll go. Big <laughs> bookstore. We can actually meet people. But anyway, um, who cares Strand about people? Has... Books. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, Strand has a little thing on the outside of the store, going around the corner, are these uh, dollar carts. Mm -hmm. So you have like all these discounted books. They're all labeled like a dollar, two dollars, whatever. Oh. And uh, one day I was browsing them, and I actually found a copy of In the Beginning Was the Command Line on paperback for a dollar. Wow. And, of course, I had to pick it up. Oh, that's uh, quite a find. That is. That is very much quite a find. That's actually one that we should also put in the notes, too, because that's a really good book to read. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Yes. I'm pretty sure it's, a, it's been available for free on the web for quite some time, though. Yeah. I have, um, I have a PDF copy on my, uh, on my Kindle. Oh, cool. Sticking in there. All right. Yeah. Um, uh, before so we get go from here now. Oh, before we get too far into this, actually, um, there are some other topics that I'm going to talk about next week, perhaps, because I, I I'm enjoying the conversation here. Mm -hmm. Um, I uh, we have some uh, letters from our oh, uh, listeners yeah, those people and a voicemail too. <laughs> a voicemail. Wow. I know it's been a good week. Oh no! Let oh, me yes, guess. It's, it's a troll's voicemail, which means it's going to take like 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's not from trolls this time, so maybe it'll uh, be not brief. Not from trolls. Not from trolls. <laughs> uh, okay, who is it? Is it from one of our other pals? It is from a pals. It's uh, why don't we why don't we do the the voicemail first? Actually, it is from uh, Tomer Gabel from Israel. He was a guest on our podcast talking about hardware some time oh, cool. ago. Let me see I, what. Yeah, I remember him. I used to see um, a lot of his stuff in Moby Games a lot. Oh, really? Yeah, that's where I actually know the name. I know I know him from Moby Games. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, he I don't remember how he and I met on Twitter, but he's been on Joe Mastriani's Upper Memory Block uh, Hangout episodes a couple of times, and he mm -hmm. is a prolific demo scener as well. So he's awesome. he kind of runs in all the all the right circles, if you ask me. <laughs> okay, now you're speaking my language, the demo sceners. Oh, sweet. All right, well, let's see what uh, Tomer has. You know what? Let's actually get to let's do Tomer's uh, voicemail last because. His voicemail is about Linux, and our other letters are not about Linux. All right, so check in the emails. Okay, so emails. Our first one is from Francisco Gonzalez. Hey, Francisco. Hey, Francisco. Hi, Franny. Franny. <laughs> this is in. That's nice. This, this is in uh, response to our conversation last week, where we were talking a little bit about his game, A Golden Wake. Mm -hmm. Oh, which I got to play still. Oh yes, you do. And Bianca's yes, in the do. progress of playing. Yes, I am, and I'm having a good, pretty good time so far. I'm now in the second chapter. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. All right, so Francisco says, Hey, Squares, thanks so much for the kind words regarding A Golden Wake on the, the latest episode of the podcast. Doc Dammers is indeed played by Abe Goldfarb, and as always, he knocked it out of the park. I actually wrote the character with Abe's voice in mind, so it was a real pleasure to work with him. To clarify what you guys asked about, I developed the game independently with the idea of pitching it to Wajidai, hence why I wound up doing everything minus the sound, and it was released as a published Wajidai game. Soon after, Dave Gilbert, uh, is the Dave he's talking about, was nice enough to hire me on full-time. Ben and I had already started pre-production on Shardlight, which would, uh, which would also have been published a published Wajidai game had I not been hired. However, since I'm now a full-time designer, it's now an official in-house project, as will be all other games I design in the future. Hope Bianca enjoys the rest of the game, Francisco. Well, thank you very, very much, Francisco, for clarifying, and it's great to hear from you again. We've got to have you back on the podcast for, I forget, the third time, the fourth time. It'll be great to chat with you again sometime soon, we hope. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll certainly uh, encourage all of our listeners to check out his game, A Golden Wake. And also, he's published for at least a decade a whole bunch of free adventure games of 
various shapes and sizes, I guess most prominently being his Ben Jordan series of uh, Gabriel Knight-style uh, paranormal investigator games. Those are those are amusing and uh, well put together. Oh, those, have you those made a link to those to in the previous well. show notes? Are they available on Linux or no? Oh, you know what? They are, they are uh, created with the Adventure Game Studio engine, which mm -hmm. I believe natively only works in Windows, Win32. There are some ports of, it, if not the engine, then of individual uh, mm -hmm. projects to macOS, and I'm not sure about Linux, yeah. but they are designed to natively run on Windows only. Yeah, because I have, um, from Wadjedi, I have the first three Blackwell games, and I have the Shiva, and they all have native Linux versions, which I've been playing. Oh, do they? I, yeah, I'm, I'm just waiting for, um, I'm waiting for the last two Blackwells to get Linux ports, though, because I'm dying to finish the series already. I'm oh. a bit of a latecomer to it, but I'm like, I'm dying to play them already. Oh, they're well worth it, too. They are they're, well they're, worth they're it. They're beyond worth it. I love the first three already. Mm -hmm. I was yeah. a latecomer as well, and I pretty much did all of them. Yeah, you kind of one-shotted the whole thing, didn't you? You kind of <laughs> put it into a hypodermic and mainline that whole series. Yeah, it's like, needle, into the vein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just picked up the Shiva and I finished that one, and that one was actually really good, too. Oh, I own that. I got about halfway through. I need to finish that. I should replay oh, you, it. It's, it's worth it. It's so worth it. And aren't the Jewish I, jokes on the computer at the beginning really great? Yeah, I and I, I love, good. too. Like, I love this story. I love the atmosphere of it. I love, like... He captures, like, the way he captures the feel of New York is just, like, so bang on target. But then again, I think he is a New Yorker. Oh, yeah, clearly. Yeah. He does that he, in Blackwell as well. Yeah, I, I'm, I've met him in person a couple of times. He's a real nice guy. I haven't actually met his wife or his daughter, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's a cool guy. I love his work. And, yeah, I'm, I'm dying to see the last two Blackwells already. I have been told by more than one person that his wife, Janet, is a very nice lady, but also a very inventive and creative and very effective uh, programmer. Yeah, and as I understand it, she was the one who was responsible for the Linux ports of the games. I believe so. Some of them were also done by uh, another gentleman and the who was actually the former co-host of this show, Chris. Yeah. He, he did or I, he did actually mobile uh, ports. I don't know if he did Linux or Mac OS uh, mm -hmm. ports. Yeah, I, I had something to find out, I suppose. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, next email? Next email. This one is from our longtime listener, uh, Ryan Bernard, who I believe is from Seattle. So, hi, Ryan. Terrific to hear from you again. It's been a little while. Hi, Ryan from the East Coast. Yes. Ryan says, uh, oh, his letter is about uh, Scary Games, which we talked about in a couple of previous episodes with uh, Akago. Hey, Akago. Yep. In episode yep. 37. Oh, thank you, Encyclopedia Brown. Yep. <laughs> Ryan that one too. <laughs> Ryan says oh, no, that would be uh, thirty six and uh, thirty eight. Oh yes. well, that averages to thirty seven, so I don't have to dunk your head in the toilet, I guess. No, because I'll dunk your head in the toilet for both of us. Ryan says, <laughs> "Hey, I've been meaning to write in for a while now, but I keep forgetting. And with more and more episodes having gone by, I'm not sure what to even comment on anymore." Oh, and Ryan, feel free to comment on anything anytime. We are. This is a retro podcast, so be feel free to be, talk about retro episodes. Yep. Um, I just finished episode 37 today, so I'm about a week behind now. That tends to happen each time Joe releases a UMB episode, which Joe just did, by the way. He just released a great episode about System Shock 1 and 2, so do give that a listen, fair listeners. Yep, got to do that one. So uh, I'll just touch on a couple of quick topics. First, the Game Ideas podcast with Trolls. I loved it. I have a Google Drive folder full of unfinished game design documents that I'm sure will never see the light of day, but greatly enjoyed writing and thinking about them at the time. 
I should participate in one of those game jams you guys were talking about. I think I could get suckered into one if the theme was to secure the big account. <laughs> <laughs> also, I read through Trolls the Thing Adventure Game Design Doc, and I would totally play that. It's an awesome idea. Yeah, that's a great design doc. It's very fleshed out. I it was is. Impressed. And it's also terribly convoluted. Yeah, yeah well, it is. Well, Ryan, don't feel bad because I also have about 15, 20 documents right now that are all unfinished game ideas. Mm. And sadly, I don't have any of my old notebooks from when I was a teenager because I was like very much like I wanted to be a game designer so damn badly when I was a kid. Mm. And like, I guess even adult me still wants to be a game designer in some form or another. Sure. Yeah. I, my biggest one, though, like when I was a kid, was like when Doom came out, like I used to play with the editing tools like crazy. Ah. And when Build came out, I even went even further because I actually took it to the point where I made like a full fleshed out design doc for a game that I was going to use the Build Engine with hmm. if I could get the, li the license to it, even though like, you know, poor kid from the suburbs is not going to get one. But right. anyway, I still did the design docs anyway, and I used to experiment with Duke Nukem's build editor to try to make my own designs. I heard that was a very good uh, accessible editor for uh, the layman. Yeah, I actually bought the design. What was it? The uh, the Duke Nukem uh, level design book recently on Amazon. Mm. I used to have a copy back when I was a kid, but I sadly lost it. The only book that I had from back then that I still kept was the Doom game editor by uh, Joe Panuso, mm -hmm. which we'll put that one in the notes too. A couple of the Doom and Duke books. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I used to read the Doom game editor religiously, and I used to use the Doom editor and actually make my own designs. That's really cool. Did you uh, yeah. distribute them on the internet and everything? I did a couple. I don't think they really exist anymore, and I don't remember my old my old handle was like really like of course like snotty you know punk ass <laughs> teenager. Uh -huh. Yeah, Word. I was uh, okay. I was Dark Lord X. <laughs> <laughs> that was that's like every internet user. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was like every internet user. I'm like, okay, lack of imagination. Moving on. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, that's <laughs> great. Similarly. But I did. I did a couple of Doom levels. I did some dehacked patches as well. And I did a particularly nasty one mm. that turned some of the lower level enemies into higher level enemies. So like you would shoot like the zombie guys and they would turn into barons on you. Oh, that's a mind fuck. <laughs> yeah, that is. That's like horrible. Uh -huh. like, they come at you like zombie men and then like all of a sudden it's a baron in hell and you're like, what the fuck, guys? <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna say you're old the BBS handle or whatever? Uh, it was handle? Dark Lord X. No. It was yours. Actually, although I didn't have game design docs, I had a oh. whole bunch of uh, stories I had started. Some of them I lost because, well, my computer died woefully on me. But I had a bunch of original fiction and some fan fiction, a lot of it which never got finished, unfortunately. So mm. I had documents like another 20 or so sitting around of unfinished stories. I seem to recall uh, we were, I think you and I were screwing around with your computer uh, when we were in college and we fucked something up and you lost a bunch of stuff. And then uh, you had a USB stick, which you couldn't find and we thought was at my house. So yeah. you asked me to drive home. It was like two in the morning. <laughs> I drove home and I got a speeding ticket. But then oh I, my God. But then I found the USB stick and I brought it back and you, you were happy. I was so happy. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had a bunch of fan fiction too back in the day. I actually um, I remember the old word processor I used to use for DAWs. It was um, PFS Professional Write that oh, I wrote I, everything in. Oh, I don't know that one. Um, oh man, I, it's really hard to find information on it. I'm gonna see if I can probably find it somewhere. But I remember it was a DAWs-based um, word processor. It had a very simple interface to it, mm -hmm. and it was super fast. It was super easy to work with, and I loved it to pieces. I was like my go-to writing tool. Oh, sweet. I used to use one called WordStar 2000. 
And oh, I, wow. I don't I, remember that one. Oh, wait, WordStar. You, okay, now I remember that one. Okay, I don't remember the company that made it. They might have just been called WordStar for all I know. But they had the whole um, WordPerfect style uh, reference card that you would stick above the function keys on your computer. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right, well, I found the, uh, the Wikipedia article on it, so I'm going to just paste it into the Skype conversation. You guys can take a look at it. Oh, please cool. do. I'll stick it in the notes. Thanks. Yep. So let's get to the second half of uh, Ryan's email. Okay. He says, next, a quick comment about scary games. Mm-hmm. I, wanted, I want to toss in a, a vote for Eternal Darkness. I bought a GameCube while attending university. A buddy of mine lived about two hours away, and every other weekend I would drive down to his house and we'd go rent a scary movie or a GameCube game from Blockbuster. We stumbled upon Eternal Darkness one of these, one of these times and loved it. Next mm-hmm. time, we rented it again. I think we ended up renting it five or six times before we beat the game. Then we liked it so much, we split the cost to buy a copy because we wanted to play it again. Mm-hmm. I think we ended up spending over $100 for the game in total. <laughs> Lastly, I wanted to thank you and Bianca for sharing your touching story about the dialysis and kidney transplant. Oh, I'm glad that you both are back in full health and were able to find such a fun coping technique to have with each other during that hard time. Oh, wow. That's nice. I'll stop here. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Hope we can hear from co-host Chris again soon. Bianca, love having you as a co-host as well. Take care, guys. Ryan Bernard. That's awfully nice. Thank you so much, Ryan. Great to hear from you again. I, I got to make a mention of Eternal Darkness. And, you know, I was actually doing this with my friend yesterday, uh, my friend Edgar, mm. who's, um, the co- who's the host of the uh, podcast that I'm on, The Nostalgia Road Trip. Mm. Yes, we got to do that. I'm going to give you guys a link to it on SoundCloud. But anyway, yes. we're talking about scary games and scary movies, and I completely forgot to mention Eternal Darkness. Hmm. That game scared the absolute piss out of me. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you... Because you know how in that game, right? Hmm. Um, I'm going to make mention of it. There's this thing called the sanity meter. When it starts dipping down really low, crazy things start happening in the game. Like It'll start blanking out on you. It'll put up fake blue screens. It'll start being like um, breaking up the screen. Um, you hear like children crying in the background. You hear weird breathing noises. It starts distorting the camera. Oh, that's it does awesome. everything in its power to fuck with your head. Did uh, Akago talk about this one? I think so, yeah. Or a similar one. I, we, we haven't played Sanity's this. Sanity's Requiem, I think is what he said. Eternal Darkness. I have it in the show notes. You yeah, must have mentioned one. it. Yeah, I think he talked about it on the last show, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, that, that one really screws with people's heads, and I cannot highly recommend it enough. Oh, if you want cool. a genuine scare, that is the game to play. Oh, awesome. Yep. And it actually has a really good score on Metacritic of 92 out of 100. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure you I, I actually kept a GameCube. I have like a bunch of the consoles around. Mm-hmm. But um, we still have a GameCube in the house, and I have it especially for that. Um, Killer7 is another absolute favorite of mine on the GameCube, even though it's more like screws me to your head in a sort of different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Killer7, so, was that one by Suda51? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one done by Grasshopper. That is one of my absolute favorite games ever made. Ooh. Mostly because of the fact it's so out there. It's just like, it's hard to classify. It's impossible to classify. But it's like, it screws through their head. And if you love like weird art house films, this is like the art house game. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the aesthetics of it. I love the design of it. It's like, it's so simple and stark. And also too, the heaven smile, like the enemies in the game, the heaven smile mm-hmm. are extremely creepy because... Initially, they're invisible, and you only hear, like, they're in the area when you hear, like, this little kind of, like, this laugh, and when they come up to you, they just kind of, like, suicide bomb you by grabbing you and blowing up in your face with this That's horrible. laugh. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Don't scare me. That horrible, like, (laughs) 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 (
Yeah. Oh, they blow up in your face, and then like you see like the dead head of your characters like scream out like this bloody kanji onto the screen. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> nice. Now that's how you play a game, folks. Oh, sweet. I, I was just um, reminiscing with a friend from work the other day about Serious Sam, and we uh, laughed remembering the headless, the, the swarms of headless men who uh, run towards you with a huge bomb in each hand going, oh, yeah. ah! That's fantastic. I love that. Oh, I will I will happily put a, a link to your uh, podcast, by the way, in the show notes. Yes. Yeah, um, we just did our 81st episode for Halloween, which will be coming out in a couple of days. 81st, congrats. Yeah, we're, we're at 81 episodes. Um, they're generally like half an hour each, and it's just basically the two of us like kind of like ad-libbing a lot of humor and kind of like being like cranky old men reminiscing about the old days. I can relate. Yeah, but um, generally we talk about like stuff we grew up with, stuff that like, you know, what the hell the kids are doing nowadays, and like we kind of do like the cranky old men like back in my day type of thing as well mm. a lot of it is like very um from improvised and off the cuff and yeah it's just us being crazy and um, we have a sister podcast called the retro vgm revival hour mm. which is basically edgar um doing like one hour like one hour um episodes based on like themes of video game music oh beautiful yeah but he'll do like thematic episodes like um he just recently released one for the halloween you know like the halloween season mm -hmm. so it's all like scary halloween games um he's done uh, the sega dreamcast sonic the hedgehog um cartoon based games um, fighting games, beat em up games. He did an entire Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles episode. Oh. I'm gonna put the link out to this too. Please do. Oh man, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the first one for the Nintendo. I get yes. the freaking overworld music in my head all the time. I love that game, even though it was like it was very hard and I never quite beat it. But I always <laughs> loved that game because that game, when I got it, I mean, like I was just like devoted to it. The fact like I was, you know, big on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles back in the day. Me too. But it's just like. You know, I don't know what it was. It's like it kind of had like that dark, grungy look to it too. Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, but um, I remember the first time I played the arcade game, and I was like, I was fixated on that, and I remember angering my mom because I took like all my allowance just to blow it on the game. I love that game, the four-player uh, simultaneous co-op. Yep. Yeah, brilliant game. Absolutely brilliant. We uh, did an episode a while back about our favorite arcade games, and I believe that one and The Simpsons were both on our list. Yeah, I remember, the same game. I remember uh, the first time I played The Simpsons with one of my best friends. We used to go to this big arcade in New Jersey called Sports World. Mm -hmm. And um, they, when they had The Simpsons Arcade there, I remember we spent nearly $20 between the two of us to beat the game. Oh, I believe. It takes all that, too. That was pretty much uh, my old co-host Chris's, Chris's uh, story as well. Just yeah. pumping quarter after quarter after quarter. That is an unfair game. Yeah. Um, I'd like to make a quick mention for Retro VGM Revival Hour. Please. I'm going to be doing a future episode for the show based on the LucasArts series. Oh, outstanding. Yeah, I'm doing all LucasArts games on it. So, um, so far, I've got Maniac Mansion, Zack McCracken, Monkey Island 1 and 2, Indiana Jones. I'm going to do Sam and Max Day of the Tentacle, The Dig, Full Throttle. Like, basically, like, the like the best of the LucasArts catalog. Oh, terrific. Of the graphic adventures and a couple of their console games all thrown in. And, of course, I'm going to include Outlaws. Oh, of course. I have yeah, to include Outlaws, and I'm going to include... Um, Herc's Adventures for the PlayStation and Saturn. Because oh. I used to actually enjoy that game tremendously. I don't know that one. Um, have you ever played Zombies Ain't My Neighbors? No. Super Nintendo, right? Yes. No, I haven't. Okay. Oh, yeah, I have for like two minutes. I didn't like it. Okay, well, it's basically that style of game. You okay. know, the overhead, like, you know, beat up all the bad guys type of game. Yeah. But um, it's in like a, a parody of Ancient Greece. So you play as Hercules, Atlanta, or Jason the Argonaut. Whoa. Yeah. And Lucas you have Arts. to basically fight like 
Cyclopses and like Martians and you know Hades, of course, the undead are everywhere. Martians, yeah, it, it gets really bizarre towards the end. That's that's awesome. It is. It's pretty. It's pretty awesome. Um, it had a really good soundtrack too. It's like you know all the uh, LucasArts alumni, of course, worked on it. And um, I forgot who did the music. I think it was Michael Land of LucasArts that did the music. Oh yeah, he usually. But did. It's yeah, it's very much typical of his work. Oh, that's great. Well, I. I... Can't believe I haven't listened to uh, Retro VV VGM Revival Hour, but I most very most certainly will. Yep. Well, now you got the links, and you can actually uh, show them on the notes too. Oh, I guarantee it. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, we do. Um, they come out like every two weeks or so because like those take longer to edit because it's basically Edgar doing um, most of them by himself. Mm -hmm. Nostalgia Road Trip is a weekly podcast, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Shall we? Shall we uh, check out our uh, voicemail from uh, Tomer? Yes. Let's, Let's do so. Okay. Oh, uh, you mean this tangent has uh, come to an end? <laughs> this is Tangent the Podcast, dude. <laughs> oh, of course, my bad. <laughs> Check in the voicemail. Oh, Check in the voicemail. Oopsie. Uh, you mentioned... Let me see if I can... Friggin' Windows 10 has this shit-ass groove music music player, and I hate Clunk. it. Clunk. Uh, Let me see if I can find something better to play this with. Do you have VLC? Oh. I don't think I have VLC installed. Uh, uh, how do you not have VLC installed? Do I? Because I've been listening to uh, music with Google Music in the, on the web, and I, most of the videos I've been watching have been on Netflix, so I don't even have the local apps installed. I'm going to uh, grab yeah. VLC just because it can uh, amplify to 200% uh, volume, because this sounds like a quiet voicemail. Yeah, I have VLC anyways, but that's because I watch The Walking Dead and everything else offline. I, I, buy, I uh, download it the day after it's been on the air. <laughs> Who doesn't? Yeah, I, I have VLC, especially for my desktop. I get to watch, like, I can actually watch Blu-rays with it now. Oh, that's hmm. good. Yeah. But um, I use it also, too, because, like, I, tor I torn a lot of stuff. Like, you know, I miss a lot of my shows, so I torrent them so I can watch them later on. Mm -hmm. But um, the one thing I just kind of wish that VLC would do is I want to learn how to stream Bandcamp through VLC. Oh, can you? I have not tried it yet. I know Bandcamp has an app, but I don't know what kind of protocol they use to stream the music you own. Because, yeah, I've, we've added to each other to uh, Bandcamp now. You do have a good uh, collection of purchases on there. Yeah, I, I, I've been getting into, like, a lot of Vaporwave because I was actually doing, like, a design document for, like, a kind of, like, weird surrealist dream game. And I've been looking for, like, a lot of, like, dream-like music to go with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been listening to a lot of the Vaporwave stuff so I can actually get, like, good ideas of, like, how to lay it out. Yeah, you have been. I've seen a lot of... A lot of uh, old school '80s synth style stuff on your on your list there. Yeah, I'm a very diverse guy. Like, if you see my record collection or my CD collection, like I I pretty much am all over the map. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I I like I love to explore. Oh. That's my big thing. But anyway, I believe we have a voicemail, right? Yes. Let me see. Yes. Oh, it's only boosting it to 125 percent. Let's see if this is loud enough. Okay. Oh, hi Brian and co-host of the week. Uh, you mentioned that you're going to be talking about Linux this week, and I figured I'll uh, rant a little bit. So, you know, what can I say about Linux? Uh, it's a great effort. It's uh, the progenitor of most of the, you know, kind of popular open source movement. And as a desktop operating system and or gaming operating system, pretty much the only thing I can reliably say about Linux is, ah, it's a pile of shit. <laughs> uh, sorry about that, but it's not a desktop OS and should not be used as such. If you don't love to tinker and you don't have the patience to, you know, wrangle trivial things to to get them working properly, this is not the operating system for you. It's great for servers. It's great for embedded devices. It's great for a whole lot of things. 
But one thing it is not great for is running a desktop and or gaming. Um, one of the things I like to do is whenever I meet a bunch of Linux fanboys, I like to troll them by saying that the by far the best desktop Linux distribution is a Mac. Uh -huh. So next time you meet a couple of Linux fanboys, just try it out and see them, you know, basically venting steam out of their ears. It's one of the most uh, fantastically gratifying experiences a troll could have. <laughs> um, I don't really have that much to say about Linux, uh, except that professionally speaking, it's definitely uh, the, one of the most useful tools in my toolbox. But, uh, you know, for most listeners of the show, probably stay the hell away from it, because if you don't have a love for technology and software for technology and software's sake, it'll fuck up your life. So thank you. Have a good day. Bye. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tomer. Yeah, the the along those lines, the quote that I have heard many times before is Linux is free if your time is worthless. Uh well, my time is worth something, but I still do it anyway. Mm. I, I am a I am a crazy tinkerer, but um yeah, you see why I said like earlier that I kept I kept the Mac around because I still need it for specific things. Right. Yeah. But um I guess to go along with that, I mean like I've personally not really had many issues with Linux as a desktop operating system, but I guess maybe it's like better luck on my end hmm. or maybe because I do take the time to tinker and make things work because like I had mentioned earlier, getting my uh, my graphics card to work was a pain in the ass with the free drivers. So when I had to bite the bullet and open up and use the non-free drivers, I actually got it working with full acceleration. And now my, my desktop is completely usable as I want it to be, but I'm still constantly playing and tinkering with it under the hood because some days I'm like, eh, I don't like the way that this works, so I'll tweak things. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that Linux, like, using it now versus 1994 when I first used it, like, Linux has come a long way. Like, desktop, like, hardware support has gotten significantly better, and there are some distributions like Ubuntu and Mint that try to make things work as, as painless as possible out of the box. Mm -hmm. But there are still some bumps in the road. You know, no operating system, though, is ever 100% perfect. I mean... Windows is not 100% perfect, OSX is not 100% perfect, and Linux is not 100% perfect, and I will probably be one of the most rabid fanboys out there, but I'm an honest fanboy, mm -hmm. and I'm saying it. Linux isn't 100% perfect, because even on laptops especially, I mean, I've had some bumps in the road with my laptop. I can sometimes have trouble getting video out to work with the VGA connector, but it works perfect with HDMI, which boggles my mind. Yeah, that's kind of consistent with all operating systems, I find, if you... Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the laptops sometimes use strange hardware that you don't find anywhere else, and it's only on a couple of la uh, models of laptops, so you're at the mercy of the developer or the vendors to develop the proper drivers, which they often don't. Yeah, but, um, you know, I, out of, like, all the Linux experiences I've had, and I've dabbled with quite a few distros, um, I got to say that, you know, Debian and its ilk are probably the best and most stable that I've ever used as of so far. Well, uh, what was the second one, sorry? Uh, Debian and its ilk, basically like Debian and all of its offshoots. Oh, it's ilk, right. Yeah. But um, yeah, because I've used Debian and I've used um, Ubuntu uh, for emergency systems. I have a Nopic system around, which is also a Debian derivative. Mm -hmm. um, I've never really used uh, Mint before, so I can't really speak much about Mint. Mm -hmm. But from what I hear from people that use it, it is extremely stable and everything works perfectly, more or less, with it. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, it's like, and if you really want, like, uh, sorry, Tomer, but it's like, you want a better operating system, and you said a Mac. Uh, the best Linux is a Mac. Mac is actually a BSD. 
Ugh, Mac's right. a piece of garbage. I hate Mac. <laughs> well, I still got to have one around because uh, our tools are still really good on, Lin on Mac OS. Yeah. Mm. I have a question about actually you putting Linux on an older laptop, actually specifically netbook. Mm. Um, would, you, would it be easy to install a newer version of uh, Ubuntu or Debian on an older netbook and assume that there might be decent driver support? Um, I would probably say yes and no. Um, <laughs> yes, because, uh, yeah, like the newer kernels will have like more modules available for certain pieces of hardware. But uh, no, because um, depending on the hardware that's in the netbook itself, you might have to either provide a module for it or you might have to tweak something to get something else working. Um, an example would be um, I, had, um, I had to help somebody with an Asus EPC in a nine-incher. Mm. And I gave them a Lubuntu 15.04 stick, which basically everything in the in the Asus worked right out of the box. We didn't have to install any modules or anything like that to get anything working. Everything, like all the hardware, the Wi-Fi, the Bluetooth, the, the camera, everything all worked. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm, that's worth uh, considering. Because yeah. I was thinking of actually turning my old netbook into just a Linux laptop because I had nothing else to do with it. Plus, it has Windows XP on it right now. And... Mm -hmm. I have no idea what my dad's done to it. He, he said he updated it, but I'm still weary of its current status. Uh, so uh, I, what kind of um, what kind of netbook is it? It's an Asus, I think. Yeah, it's an Asus, an older one. It's maybe oh, like the EPCs. Um, I think it might be. It might be, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you if you put like an Ubuntu in there, it'll work right out of the box. But for those, I would not really recommend using like regular Ubuntu. Use like uh, Lubuntu with uh, the lightweight LXDE la uh, desktop environment. Oh, right. It's, yeah, it's a lot lighter. It's a lot less resource heavy. It'll run much faster on that. Yeah, yeah the, the Unity environment, I think, is more system intensive. Yeah, it's too that. bloated. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I would definitely use a lighter one. But yeah, I was considering uh, doing that just for fun because I had nothing else to do recently besides play video games and do a bunch of boring ass crap. Yeah. Hey, it's worth it though. I, I do believe it'll be worth trying out. And you know, the other thing about that too is that it'll make a good travel laptop. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, it's as slow as friggin' molasses that thing though. And I don't think it's only because of Windows. XP is just like not a very good OS for older systems, I find. But um it had like, I think like a fifty four hundred RPM it might even be slower than fifty four hundred RPM. No, it's fifty four. It was a pretty. It was a pretty good one when I bought it at the time. It was not. It was. Well, it, not really. It was a netbook, which was like the lowest of the low end. True, but it, it. Was, it was. A, it was a netbook, but it was one of the better netbooks at the time. We liked oh, it because it had like seven hour battery life or something. Yeah, it had great battery life. Models? I don't remember the model. Do you? Uh, it's in my bedroom right now in a bag. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's probably still faster because the oldest of the laptop I still have laying around, or one of them is my old uh, ThinkPad T42, mm -hmm. which I'm running uh, Icarus desktop on. Oh, that's a great laptop. Yeah, th those those were tanks. The IBM ThinkPads are tanks. Yeah, or at least they were. Yeah, but um, yeah, I took this one. I'm running a, a little thing um called Icarus desktop, which is an Amiga-like operating system for oh, x86. Cool. Yeah, because I've always had a fascination with the Amiga, and I never really owned one because they were hard to get as a kid, you mm -hmm. know, back in the, in the U.S. especially. Yeah. So this is about the closest I'm going to get to having some sort of, of an Amiga. That's fun. Does it? Yeah. It's like the, the GUI Amiga? The GUI is kind of Amiga-like. Um, I don't have it on right now, but, um, yeah, the GUI is kind of Amiga-like. Um, it runs uh, Amiga 3.1. It has, like, compatibility with Amiga OS 3.1 APIs. Mm-hmm. 
And it does have a compatibility layer. It actually has an emulation layer that actually runs 68K Amiga code on it. Oh, that's very impressive. Yeah. Um, let me, I'll put up a link to it, too. I'll send you guys a link to it as well, so you can probably put it in the notes. Oh, yeah, please. Yeah. It's, it's worth looking into, especially like as a hobby. It's really fun to play with. Well, I guess speaking of Linux as a hobby, um, this is probably a good place for us to mention uh, distributions like Nopix or even uh, Ubuntu, which has like the live CD installer. Um, yeah. So for those that don't know, um, if you're interested in just kind of getting a little taste of, of Linux without having to commit to anything, there's something called a live CD, which means that you can burn a Linux, a Linux distribution to a CD or to a DVD. You stick it in your computer and you reboot it, and it will actually boot off the off the disk, and you'll be running the Linux operating system just for that one session. And when you re you take the disk out and reboot again, then you're back to Windows. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's a, it's a great, okay. uh, easy way to just see whether it's something you're interested in. Yeah, it's also a good way of testing whether the hardware in your system will be seen by Linux or not. Yeah, that's true. That's probably a good thing to do for your netbook. Her netbook doesn't have a, a, an optical drive, but it has USB ports, which we can make a bootable one. Yeah, and I, that's why I was thinking doing a, a boot, bootable USB key. Right. Which we have one sitting right here, and I believe this is the one you use to abuse your computer with many times over. <laughs> I, I abuse my computer with anything I can get my hands on. <laughs> yeah. I, that I, poor I thing is a, would be a battered wench at a uh, woman's shelter at this point. <laughs> <That's lovely. laughs> I, yeah, I, I have a store uh, near me called uh, Micro Center, which they sell like their own store brand um, USB drives. They're like four or five dollars for like four or eight gigabytes. Mm -hmm. so I usually could just run over there and just buy like a whole bunch of them for pennies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a really good way of just grabbing like a bunch of cheap like eight gigabyte sticks. If I ever want to make like live you know live distros for people, yeah, yeah, I I love I actually like the way though like I remember the um, first time like Ubuntu I think it was like the first one that popularized the uh, the live CD concept, and I remember it was a really great way of testing hardware too that like something might be wrong with it until Nopix came along and became like the go-to emergency disk, you know, like emergency operating system for um, system repair. Yeah, oh, I love I, that. Yeah, I was using Ubuntu for um, system repairs until Nopix came along. I had no idea that Ubuntu did it first. Nopix was the first that I had heard of. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I think it was. I mean, like, I didn't really find out about Nopix until like about two years after I started, you know, until I discovered Ubuntu. Mm. And what I also liked about that in Ubuntu is that, you know, you uh, reboot your machine and you, or you stick the, uh, the disk in the drive, and then while you're installing the operating system on your hard drive, you can surf the web and play around on like a fully functional computer as opposed to Windows, where it's yeah. like full screen dedicated to the process of installing the system on your machine. So you can just you just walk away and do something else. Yeah, because like the installer is running like one thing while the live session is still going and you can still like, yeah, you can still make use of the live session while it's installing. Mm -hmm. That's really I like, cool. I did like that. Yeah, that's very, it's very handy. It's a good yeah. way to familiarize yourself with the, uh, the, the tools, the, the software that's available to you while you're installing. Yeah, it's like, you know, nowadays people have it easy because back in the day when I first started installing Linux, it's like, I remember I had to make a boot floppy. I had to boot off of that. I had to pray that my CD drive, which was external at the time, was actually seen by the boot floppy. Right. And I was, just make, I was like, I was hoping that I would see like all the hardware in my computer and I would be able to mount the drives and do everything. And I was like, if something went wrong, then I'd have to go back and I'd have to tweak the boot disk and make another one. And I like it. It used to be like a real hair razor back then. Oh sure, is that still a necessity? By the way, mounting mounting a disk when you stick it in a drive. Yeah, and hmm. no, I shouldn't really say hair razor. It was a hell razor. <laughs> oh. It was really nuts back then because it's like, yeah, you stick the disk in the drive. Like 
you boot off the floppy and it's automatically mounted and it gives you like a very basic shell. Mm-hmm. And then like, yeah, you got to mount the hard drive and then you got to mount the, C- the CD drive and hopefully everything works. And then you got to run like the install command off the CD as root and let it do its job. And you had a manual, you also had to manually partition the disks back in the day by hand. And they were a lot pickier back then too about the partitions yeah. you created. And damn it, we went uphill both ways in a blizzard with no shoes and or a threadbare jacket. That's right. That's yeah. right. So you had to do, let's see if I can even remember. There's like a system partition, there was a swap, there was boot, oh, there was user, there was. There and temp. Yeah, yeah, temp as well. That's right. Yeah, and home. Oh, of course. Oh, is home its own partition? You can make home your own partition. I always do, actually, because um, if anything ever happens to my operating system and it gets totally hosed. Oh, you format everything but. Yeah, you can format the root partition and start all over again, and I keep my home partition. Uh, I do something similar in Windows. I have uh, my C drive. Well, it's easier now that I have my small solid-state drive because I just don't partition that. But back when I used to only have one uh, mechanical hard drive, I would make one partition for Windows and then Uh maybe one for music and one for games. And then if I had to format, then I would just lose my Windows partition, but all the other stuff I could still access. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier, actually, because, yeah, you don't lose all of your personal data and, like, People who do like some of the, like you know the installs nowadays, like they just do one partition and then like the whole system goes down and you're screwed. You have to use a live CD to recover your stuff. Yeah, that's right. Screw that. Yeah, that's too but, risky. Um, yeah, I've always done like uh, mine has always been like I do a boot partition, I do the root partition, I do home and swap. Mm-hmm. And that's how my setup has always been, especially on my laptop. Yeah, that that always seemed like enough to me, but I know that the. Uh... Older distributions back in the day, those were very picky about having dedicated partitions. And you had to think in advance, like, what size do they have to be? How much memory do I have? And how many times do I multiply that for the swap partition? And if you screw something up, then you basically have to format and do it all over again. Yeah, and you had to make sure that you knew exactly the value because Mm -hmm. it was all in... did you have specified in megabytes, like hundreds of megabytes, or was it? Oh, was that F disk yeah. or something? What's the? It was F disk, yeah. Yeah, and you yeah. had to like not only not only create the partitions, but also label them with the type of system yeah. or the type of data that was the going to be on them. And everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. Yeah. Oh, that was, that was and, and learning it in class. It was just an uphill battle. Yeah, we did that many many times in class. That and did you ever uh, build your own kernel in class? Um, I don't think we compiled a kernel. Oh, we did that. Maybe I don't remember. Once or twice, we got tested on it even. That was fun, actually. You can choose all the different features that you want to be installed in your. Oh yes, we did computer. compile a kernel. Mm, that was that was really fun. It was a lot of steps. It must have been like fifty steps. Oh, and then having to do it for an exam was even more stressful. That was really stressful. Yes. Oh uh, yeah, uh, I was like, I, I, that's why I kind of said, like, you know, um, if you want to go like really, really advanced, and you have like a distribution like Gentoo, mm-hmm. which everything is compiled from source in Gentoo, and uh, my running gag is. People always ask me about Gentoo, and I always respond to them by saying Gentoo makes babies cry. It sure does. Oh, that but was very. It, I couldn't it, get yeah, it to do shit. Like, in the sense that, like, if you're a newbie, don't use Gentoo. Uh huh. You will rip your hair out. I couldn't do shit. I couldn't even get it installed properly. I tried to install Gentoo, and I actually like I I went like completely crazy because like this was back when um you actually had to do like the three stages. I mean, nowadays it's simplified a little bit. I think like they start you on stage three where you get like a semi-working system and you just run from there. Mm-hmm. But this was back in the day, and like you had to bootstrap the kernel, and then you had to like do the disk partitions, and then you can install. Mm. And it was like it was a little bit too much for me back then. Like it was too hairy for me. And I'm like, I came from Slackware, and I do everything by hand, and I can't do Gentoo. What the hell? 
Oh sure, Slack, I, oh boy, did I love Slackware. That was that was the one that only came on a single CD, wasn't it? Um, yeah. And uh, another special mention about Slackware is that that was my introduction to the Church of the Subgenius. Oh yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, because um, like I had mentioned before, the ones I had came with um, the picture of Bob Dobbs on the CD. Mm-hmm. So I was like, "Who's this guy?" And then like there was a little note that came with it that talked about the Church of the Subgenius. So I, I looked it up and I just started running from there. I think we had to read that in school. What was it? The Church of the Subgenius. I'm I'm struggling to remember what it was now, actually. Uh, but we did read it. Yeah, I don't think we did. Um, one of the books about the Church of the Subgenius. Yeah. Oh, because I have one of the books here in my library. Maybe I just heard about it and we didn't read about it. One thing I remembered reading about was an essay called The Cathedral and the Bazaar. Oh, yes. I have that book as well. That was I also a brilliant have, one. Yeah, that was a good book. I have that one. Um, I have The Mythical Man Month. Um, I also have Hackers and Painters by Paul Graham, which is another good book. Oh, I don't know that one. Oh, you should check it out. It's actually a pretty good book. Hmm. Um, another one I have that I kept from a long time ago was a, um, a copy of Programmers at Work that was printed that was published by Microsoft Press. Oh, yeah, it's also a really good book too. It's um some of the guys in there, Matt Mitch Kapoor of Lotus uh, Lotus Corporation is in right. there. Mm. Gary Kildall of Digital Research is in there. Mm. Um, the creator of Pac-Man is in it. Bill Gates himself is in it. Mm. Yeah, it's a pretty good book. It's actually a really interesting read if you ever find a copy of it. Neat. Yeah, but um yeah, going back like you know Slackware got me into the Church of the Subgenius and you know I've been following them for a few years as well on and off you know. I listened to uh, their podcast as well, the Subgenius Hour of Slack, you know, a few times. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it, there you are. It's a, it's a bit of a hilarious thing. Like, I, I knew it was always, like, a big, huge joke. But it was just like, it just proved even more so, like, how much shit in life sometimes can be a bigger joke than ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it was pretty fun to actually learn from Slack where. But um, I, I decided, like, Debian for me, because, like, it gave me, like, this the best balance of, you know, power user versus quick and easy to set up. Yeah, because Debian is a little bit more nitty-gritty, do-it-yourself kind of stuff yeah. as compared to Ubuntu or uh, Mint. Yeah, and um, the one thing about Debian, too, like I had mentioned, is um, I'm running their rolling release um, Unstable build. Right. And even despite the name Unstable, it's actually been pretty rock-solid for me. Hmm. That's great. Yeah. I think they just call it Unstable. That way nobody's expecting stability. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You're not supposed to run your servers or production environments on there. Yeah, you run you run your servers on stable. This is more for like uh, developers and guys who love to live on the edge. Oh right. Well, unstable <laughs> is still a step ahead of like nightly, isn't it? Um, it actually is their nightly. Oh, is it really? Huh. Yeah. Um, they have three. They have stable, which is like the actual releases, and they have testing, which is kind of like the go between. Mm -hmm. Like packages come out of stable, un out of unstable, go into testing where they're like kind of cobbled a little bit and get you know made ready for the next release. Mm -hmm. And then unstable is basically like, you know, the playground where everything just comes like, you know, freewheeling. Oh, wow. So you must get a lot of updates. I do. I, I run like this upgrade almost every other day and I always get like new packages upgraded. That is a lot of fun, though. It is. Um, the only one thing is like sometimes like a package might break things. But, you know, basically what you can do is like you can pull out like um, like if a package breaks like a program, you can just uninstall the program and reinstall it right back in. Oh, it's a matter it's of uh, again. dependencies and stuff like that? Yeah, because, like, they, they change a lot of the dependencies frequently in Unstable. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, like, so, like, sometimes, like, a dependency will break, but if you uninstall it and reinstall it, it'll come back in with the brand new dependencies already listed in. Oh, and Debian had its own uh, dependency. Was that um, Pac-Man, the package manager? 
Uh, Pac-Man is Arch. Oh, okay, that's right. Yeah, what does Debian, Debian is, use? Uh, aptitude. Um, oh, apt, apt, is that apt-get? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's basically it's supposed to be like a better apt-get. Ah, but, um, I actually like apt-get a little bit more, even though I'm, I'm a little bit old school, because like even though apt-get is a lot more like simple and brutal, mm. it basically has never failed me, and aptitude sometimes like gets its head like lost up its own ass. <laughs> part, of my, part of my expression, because like, you use aptitude to do like large upgrades and it loses itself. While apt-get is just like, oh, big upgrade coming, boom, done. I found yeah, apt-get apt and Ubuntu has its own updates. Yeah. Engine or uh, application engine. I don't remember what that one is called. But oh, both they of those are apt-get because of the the Debian ancestry. Ah, uh, I see. They have a GUI for it though. Whereas uh, I think Synaptic. Synaptic. That's it. Yeah, that that's package a, manager. Yeah, that's just a GUI front end to um, apt-get. I see. Yeah, it, it's it's terrific because if you want to install something, it just lets you know oh, you'll have to install this and that prerequisite mm -hmm. as well. Do you want to install those? And you say yes, and it does it all for you. It's very convenient. Yep. Yeah, just go get a coffee and you're ready to go. Exactly. Oh, I, I I'm a, a sick individual. I like to sit there and watch it come in. <laughs> I love I, how I, the uh, I love how uh, Synaptic lets you like expand at the bottom of the window so that you can see the uh, individual uh, log entries as they appear. Yeah. In, in text as well as with the progress bar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I actually kick it old school though. I do all of my upgrades from the terminal. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. viable too. It's it's uh, no less convenient. You just have a, have to do a little more typing. Yeah. Well, I'm I guess I'm kind of used to it because like I guess also a bit of the programmer's mentality that you know I like to watch everything as it's going along. Like you know when I do like a repo sync for like a project or whatever, I sit there at the terminal. I make sure that everything is coming in correctly. Mm -hmm. And the same thing like when I'm rolling my code, like I do everything from the command. Like like I still invoke like you know make configure everything via the terminal. Mm -hmm. It's much more powerful and much easier for me that way because it gives me complete control, essentially. Yeah, you use whichever command line switches are appropriate for the situation. Yeah, so you know exactly what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, uh, a couple of other ones, like one of the bigger ones, because there's no real good front end for it, is um, I use uh, Doom source port in Linux called GZ Doom. Oh, yes, I use that in Windows. Yeah, uh, and uh, there's no really good front end for it, so I have to actually punch everything in via the command line for for GZ Doom to work. That has a hell of a lot of options to it as well, doesn't it? That must be a big command line command. Well, I have actually like what I did was like I made a shell script for a couple of them. So like if I want to see like run uh, Brutal Doom mm -hmm. as an example, I just have like a, a Brutal Doom .sh shell script that's just you know runs it and just says like where to point to to get all the files, right. and it just launches automatically for me. That's right. Yeah. Did, did they did they make the original Doom compatible with Linux? Um, yeah, the original Doom was ported to Linux as its own binary, mm -hmm. and then um, that source code was the one that got released by id Software under the GPL. Right, and then all the source ports came. Yeah, it came out of that one. But I remember actually when I first installed Linux, and I actually had gotten the Doom binary way back when. Mm -hmm. And I took that, I took my CD of Ultimate Doom, and I just copied the WAD into Linux, and I copied the binary in, mm -hmm. and I used to play Linux that way. I used to play Doom that way. No yeah, I, I loved how modular that was, how you could just bring in another WAD file and, and run that with the interpreter. Yeah, and um, that was the beginning of my Linux gaming you know, career, I guess. Hmm. Oh, so that's something I'd love to talk to you about, by the way, is uh, Linux gaming in this day and age. Uh, that, that's actually um, something I've been wanting to really talk about because like, a lot of people have always asked me about, you know, well, how do you play games under Linux? Is like the biggest question I've ever got, I've of ever course. gotten from people. Of course. Well, that's the question I'd love to put to you. Yeah. So I, I guess you could say like Linux gaming is 
you know, from a, like, if you do, like, a source port or a free and open source standpoint, it's on par with uh, Windows and OS X. Really? Yeah. Um, I, I guess I could start from, let's see, like, emulation, of course, is prevailing under Linux. Like, a lot of emulators for a lot of different systems mm-hmm. are all very prevalent under Linux. And some of my favorite ones are, thankfully, available under Linux. Um, some of the ones that I love to use, of course, DOSBox. Yeah. Yeah, as you can probably have seen from my tweets, like me and uh, Anatoly are constantly DOS, like we're DOS gaming nutcases. Oh, of course. DOSBox yeah. and ScumVM both run perfectly on Linux. Yeah, I have ScumVM on all my systems. I have DOSBox on all my systems. And yeah, DOSBox has been like one of the best ways for me to play all my old games without having to worry. Mm-hmm. Um, some other ones I love too, uh, the Atari VCS emulator Stella mm. is also cross-platform and that's one of my other favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a new one that I actually started using now that I've got a couple of like more high-end core systems. Core, I have a Core i3 laptop and a Core i7 desktop. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this Nintendo emulator called uh, Hegon. Okay, don't know that one. That's for the original uh, Nintendo? Uh, old Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance. Oh, that's nice oh, to have that cool. in one emulator. Yeah, and it's actually one of the most cycle-accurate, low-level emulators out of all the emulators I've ever used. Oh, that's important. Yeah, the guy, the guy who wrote it, basically, yeah, he has perfect Super NES emulation. All the support chips are perfectly emulated. Everything is extremely cycle accurate. Like every game you play, plays exactly like it should on the Super Nintendo, mm. which is extremely important because especially games that had support chips like uh, Star Fox, Doom, Super Mario Kart, and a few others. Right, that's the tricky part. Yeah, like even like Mega Man X Two and Mega Man X Three. Um, which had the CX4, the Capcom CX4 chip in it, they never ran on um, CS and NES very accurately. And under Hegon, I've actually noticed that they play exactly like they do on the Super Nintendo. And I even took out my cartridges mm. to compare. They are bang on target. Oh, that's very impressive. That is extremely impressive. And on the Core i3, I actually get the full 60 frames a second. I get full 60 frames. Hmm. Yeah. It's even better on my i7 because if I if I actually release the throttle, I get like almost 200 frames. Oh, sweet. Although, on a, yeah, that only works for, um, like, the, the Mode 7 chip or the 3D rendering uh, chips. You, you don't want to run a, a regular Super Nintendo game at 200 frames or it just goes, like, seven it times faster. It goes ballistic. Yeah, it's way too yeah. fast. Yeah, but, um, well, Mode 7 actually is a built-in um, hardware video mode on the Super Nintendo. It didn't actually require any special chips to do. Okay, right. Yeah, but um, games like uh, Super Mario Kart had like the DSP clock chip in it, which allowed it to actually do like more ma- like more complex calculations oh. that the Super Nintendo otherwise couldn't really do very well. Oh, I didn't realize that. I'm sure that raised the price of the, the cartridge. It did. That's why some of the games were at a premium. Right. But um, like some other games like Super Mario RPG, which had the uh, the SA1, which was a 10 megahertz version of the Super NES CPU built into the system. Yes. Into the cartridge. Yes. CPU right in the cartridge? Yeah. Um, the Super Nintendo is a 65C816 CPU. Okay. And the SA1 is a 10 megahertz version of that built into the cartridge, which works as sort of another coprocessor like the Super FX does. Mm-hmm. And it works as a slave CPU, so you can actually send it additional instructions or you can offload instructions to it that are too complex for the main CPU inside. Wow. Although I guess it's reliant on that bus where you plug the cartridge into the system. Yeah, the additional, pull, the additional uh, pins on the side. Right, uh, I see. Yeah, that's why you, when you look at the underside of some cartridges, while like they have like the two little like additional sets of pins on the sides, mm. those are for support chips. Mm. So maybe yeah. that's a faster bus. Those those couple of pins. Yep, pretty much. Neat. 
had yeah. no idea. That's fascinating. Um, I've got that. Um, I have Residual VM, which is also cross-platform. Oh, right. That's for uh, Grim for Fandango. Grim Fandango, yep, and, and Escape from Monkey Island. Right. Um, I have Chocolate Doom, which is one of my favorite Doom source ports. Yeah, that one's very true to the original look and yep. feel. I have EC Wolf, which is cross-platform. Oh, what's that one? EC Wolf is a Wolfenstein source port, almost in the same vein as like a GZ Doom type. Oh, so it kind of embellishes and improves it a little? Um, it does. And you have like high res support, um, faster gameplay. You can do always run. You can have an auto map. And currently, it plays Wolfenstein 3D, Spear of Destiny, and Super 3D Noah's Ark. Oh, very nice. I like those styles of source ports because they can look exactly like the original, but it adds on high res and widescreen. Yeah, and it looks I believe. Yeah, and I believe the developer said that he's now adding um, support for Blake Stone, Aliens of Gold, and Planet Strike along with them. Oh, neat. Yeah. Well I'd only play Blake Stone. Because, you know, I, I want to play Blake Stone. Like, I played Blake Stone in DOSBox, mm -hmm. but I would love to play Blake Stone in that style. Like, you know, high resolution, you know, with always run and a better auto map. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I only had poor memories of Blake Stone, but uh, Anatoly was enthusiastic about it, saying that it extended the engine a little bit, so I need to take another look at that. Yeah, it did, because it, it added things like um, floor and ceiling textures. It added some, like, some degree of lighting. Oh, and it had windows, I think, like you could see through a window or half walls or something. Yeah, like half, like half transparent walls. Mm -hmm. That's pretty and, cool. Um, I also like too, like the the idea of the gameplay is like you have like a tall building that you go through, so it's like you have like key cards you got to find for the elevators to unlock the second floor up. Mm -hmm. And um, you can actually backtrack and go back down to previous floors if you actually want to go look for additional enemies or treasures. Oh, that's interesting. That's like Ultima Underworld style. In a sort of sense, yeah. Oh, that's another game I actually want to have to get back to playing as well. Oh, I love that game so, so much. Yeah. Um, some other ones I have, um, I have two source ports for Descent 1 and 2 called um, DXX Rebirth. Oh, yeah. That's a cross-platform uh, emulator, I believe. Yeah. With um, same thing like high-res support and support for external music files and I believe like high-res artwork. That's right. It's yeah. a good one. And that's so, compatible um, with any version you can buy from GOG or Steam as well. Well, I took mine off the original discs. Uh, even better. Yeah. But um, the one I like about Descent 1 is that you can actually use external music on it. So what I did was I took a rip of the PlayStation soundtrack and I just threw it into a folder. Oh, is it the same uh, music in different uh, instruments? It's actually from the Mac OS soundtrack. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the PlayStation version of Descent uses the Mac OS soundtrack to streaming. Is it a different soundtrack, like melodically, or is it just with different instruments? Um, it's one. mostly it's mostly a different soundtrack. They only took uh, two tracks from the original PC game. Hmm. Uh, the credits the credit screen is the same one with um you know done in Redbook Audio. Mm -hmm. uh, the title screen actually a few of the tracks were redone for macOS. I shouldn't really say like only one or two. Okay. Uh, the title screen from the original DOS version is actually played during one of the levels. Ah. And what was supposed to be like the level two theme of the DOS version is actually the title screen of the Mac OS and PlayStation versions. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's re uh, rearranged a little bit differently and it's done like in a similar style almost to Descent 2. Okay. Yeah. And they're really worth checking out too. I also have um, eDuke32, of course, for Duke Nukem 3D. Right. Yeah. And I've got my other share of emulators like um, Hatari, FSUAE. And several others. Oh, there's MAME, of course. Yeah, I've got MAME, of course. And MAME, even though it's currently uh, still considered non-free, I think now with the relicensing to the BSD license, they might actually get pushed into the 
main repo, or at least a contrib repo of Debian. I'm curious, why is main non-free? Does it rely on like emulation of chips that um, are closed source? It was source? licensed, really, that made it considered non-free, because it's licensed to not really permit for a commercial release. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, but now apparently main is being relicensed under the BSD license, mm. so it'll make it much easier for it to be included in Linux distros. Okay. What does that license entail? Is that like a share alike one, where if you make a project with it, you also have to share the source for that? Um, no, the BSD license, actually, uh, let me look this up very quickly, because I don't remember it off the top of my head. Yeah, um, I, know. I think it's under the three-clause BSD license. Okay, yeah, I know there's like a BSD one, there's the Apache license, there's, yeah, the there's GPL, of Commons, course. GPL. Yeah, there's a lot of different ones with their own little quirks. Okay, um, I believe that main is going under the three-clause license, which uh, states as follows. Um, redistribution and use in source and binary forms with or without modification are permitted provided that the following conditions are met. One, redistributions of source code must retain the above copyright notice, this list of conditions, and the following disclaimer. Two, redistributions in binary form must reproduce the above copyright notice, this list of conditions, and the following disclaimer in the documentation and or materials provided with the distribution. Mm -hmm. And three, Neither the name of the organization nor the names of its contributors may be used to endorse or promote products derived from the software without specific prior written permission. Oh, that's pretty permissive. Yeah. I think that they are doing it too, so uh, maybe actually becomes a better learning tool for people who want to learn more about low-level emulation. Mm. That's good. Yeah, that's yeah. real good. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think DOSBox has had some – DOSBox, I think, has had a lot of violations of its – License where I think you're supposed to at least give credit for DOSBox yeah. where it's used, and a lot of organizations just haven't. Yeah, because DOSBox is a GPL and so is ScumVM. Mm -hmm. And I remember a while ago, ScumVM actually had an issue with um, some, I think it was uh, some distributors, some developers, uh, like the old Humongous Entertainment games, or somebody who was contracted by Atari, who took the uh, Humongous Entertainment games and ported them to the Nintendo Wii. Mm. Using ScumVM, but without crediting the ScumVM team. Oh, I heard about that too. It was just the Wii version, I think, right? Yeah, it was. It was just the Wii versions of um, Freddy Fish and Spy Fox. Mm -hmm. And basically, the uh, the agreement that they had to come down to was that they were not allowed to sell them anymore, and they had to actually pay fines to the Free Software Foundation. Wow, that's pretty serious. Yeah. Or oh, it was uh, donations actually. Sorry, and pay expenses to the lawyers from GPLViolations.org. Very interesting. And thank goodness for the FSF for enforcing stuff like that. Yeah, because basically, yeah, they were stealing they were stealing software and then trying to sell it off as their own. Yeah, exactly. They're trying to plagiarize and take credit. Yeah. So, but um also, you know, one thing about the GPL is that it also allowed like all these programs, like all these all the software to be developed and reach a broad audience because it's like if that never happened, then Linux wouldn't even have half of the stuff that it would nowadays. Right. Yeah. We wouldn't have Sela, we wouldn't have Steam, we wouldn't have, well, Steam is proprietary, but we wouldn't have ScumVM, we wouldn't have Hegon or anything of the sort. Mm. And Stella has also been used as a learning tool to teach people about Atari VCS programming because it's got an excellent debugger built into it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, that's but, nice because um, the Atari didn't even have that, did it? No. And um, the one thing about Stella is that it was also used as a basis for a couple of other like learning tools as well. Mm. Yeah. But um, the biggest one of them all now is that Steam, when it, you know, now that it finally hit the Linux platform, mm -hmm. I mean, I was very happy to have it because I was using Steam for a while when it came out on OS X. And then the first game I ever got was Portal because that was the, uh, the first game they offered. 
mm-hmm. and they offered it, they offered it for free. So that was the first game in my library. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, that was uh, two or three years ago. Yeah, um, 2010 actually. Oh, geez, time flies. <laughs> yeah, it, does. it really does. Time flies when you're playing Portal. Right. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you go through the wrong so you, one. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was actually glad though, like when um, Steam finally hit OSX and you know Portal was made available for free as a celebration. I grabbed it immediately. Of course, yeah, everyone did. Yeah. But um, when uh, the Steam client came out on Linux, on Linux, I think it was in 2013. Mm. That was around the time I had just gotten this laptop that I have now. So I decided, like, once it was made available for Debian, I just downloaded it immediately and I installed it. Oh, you had to wait for them to build it for Debian? Yeah, because it was initially made only for Ubuntu. And the one thing about Ubuntu is that even though it shares a basis with Debian, they highly recommend that you do not try to take Ubuntu packages and install them in Debian because you could cause a lot of issues. Uh Oh, what kind of issues? Uh, Mostly library compatibility issues. Mm. Mm. Because everything is so subtly different. Okay. Yeah. But um, once but they, it was available in Debian's repo, I ran with it. And so I I believe, if my numbers are right, I think there's something like 8,500 games or so on Steam for, uh, I think, all platforms combined, and about 1,000 uh, of those or so are for Linux, which isn't uh, bad. Yeah, I think about 1,600 actually are available for Linux now. Oh, wow. I think, the, uh, I think a lot of the uh, indie stuff that's been coming out has been very, very good for Linux in general. Yeah. I, I bought quite a few games actually on Steam via Lin- via the Linux um, Steam client. I bought um, well the first three Blackwall games, mm-hmm. which I Good played choice. all the way through, and I'm still waiting for Wadjet to bring out the last two to Linux. Mm-hmm. Um, I have Freedom Planet, which is also pretty excellent. Right. Yeah. Um, what's some other games I got? I got Psychonauts. Um, I bought like some of the Double Fine games. I bought Grim Fandango, and I bought Brutal Legend. Oh, it's awesome that they they, they ported those fairly recently. I think didn't they? Yeah, um, I was just having some issues though with Brutal Legend on my desktop because mm. um, I was trying to run it on my desktop and it would crash immediately and just jump back into the scene client. Wow. And it turned out it was missing a library and on the 32-bit side of things because the one part about it is that Steam is still only a 32-bit application and my machines are both 64-bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you need you might I need both do, libraries. I uh, package add architecture i386 to get it to work. Oh, does that have any other impacts on your system? Does it slow things down at all? Oh, it basically allows me to install 32-bit-only software. Okay. Because, yeah, uh, Valve has not released a 64-bit client just yet, so I'm forced to use a 32-bit one for now. That's interesting. I wonder whether that has anything to do with the games that it launches often being 32-bit or usually. Um, I don't know about that. I think probably because um, the Windows, like the parent client for Windows, I believe, is still 32-bit-only. Probably, Yeah, yeah. And I think only on OS X is it compiled to 64-bit. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking that, like, I guess when the parent goes to 64-bit, then everybody else will be 64-bit as well. But I'm, I'm just speaking hyperbole here. Yeah, sure. I wonder whether SteamOS might be 64-bit then if it's the native client. Well, we're going to find out because my, uh, my Linux group that I'm a part of is going to be having a monthly meeting in a couple of weeks, and mm-hmm. the topic will be SteamOS. Oh, awesome. Oh, I'd love to hear a, a, a letter or something on that. Oh, we have um. Well, we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our, our all of our stuff. Oh, fantastic! Oh, uh, if you could send us a link to that, I'll put it in the notes. All right. Uh, let me see if I have it. We have our um. We have our meetup page, but we also have our YouTube channel. Mm. All right. I'll, I'll give you the meetup page, and it'll probably be posted there. Terrific. Thank you. Yeah, but um. Yeah, we're gonna have a guy come in to talk about SteamOS, and I believe he's gonna give us like the whole lowdown nitty gritty about what it's all about. Hmm. Now, do you do you know much about SteamOS? 
Um, I do know that it's a Debian. It is a Debian derived system. It is a Debian derived OS, mm-hmm. and it's made for the sole purpose of running the Steam client. And it's supposed to have big picture support built in. Um, only a few basic tools like a browser and a file manager, and not much else. Because it's basically meant to be like for the Steam boxes. Yeah, that's right. Do you yeah. do you have any opinion on on Steam OS as a concept in like the infrastructure and like the just in in the way that uh, people would set up their homes for gaming? I actually like the idea that Steam OS as a Linux is going to push Linux further into the home because now you can buy this box that runs Steam OS right out of the box. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful part about it is, is that with Steam OS, and if it becomes popular enough, it will get developers to start porting a lot more of their games to Linux. That's true. Yeah. So if this really prevails, we will probably see the Linux side of the Steam library grow tremendously. Yeah, that's definitely true. I know um, Valve has been pushing that for at least two years or so. Uh, its major developers to release SteamOS versions and then ergo Linux versions as well. Mm-hmm. And that's had a lot of good impact. Not that it much, has. but a lot. It actually has quite a lot. Um, I mean, like, we're, we're getting close to 1,600 games released. And, you know, besides the games that I mentioned before, I also have, like, uh, some of the indie titles that I bought, like V6 has been hugely popular. Um, I have You Have to Win the Game. Mm-hmm. Um, I have Super Hexagon and, you know, quite a few others that are available for Linux. Yeah, um, I, the ones that I haven't really bought that are also available for Linux are games that I already have on, like, ScumVM or DOSBox or, you know, other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I did I did buy, like, Shadow Warrior because I have a bit of a tough time running that in DOSBox. Mm-hmm. And it was actually nice to run it with a more modern engine and, you know, also have high-resolution support. Right. And also get to play the expansion packs, which I never did before. Oh, right. So that's with one of the build engine uh, yeah. emulators. Yeah, they got the build engine version of uh, Shadow Warrior, mm-hmm. the original one. I bought the remake as well, and I actually had a great time with it. I actually thought it was really funny. Oh, yeah, we forgot to... We, we usually talk about what games we've been playing lately. Yeah. That's one of the games that Bianca's been playing, is the remake of Shadow Warrior. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say, we ca- we uh, skipped over that one part of the show <laughs> and went oh. straight into the uh, guts. We did. Yeah, but you know what, though? I guess we'll also cross back around, like, the stuff that we've been playing as of late. But, yeah, I've been playing Shadow Warrior. Um, I've been playing the Shiva again because I, I wanted to actually get, like, a second go-around to, you know, get the story back into my head again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still trying to beat Freedom Planet, which is being a pain in the butt. That sounds familiar. What's Freedom Planet? Uh, Freedom Planet is kind of like a – I would say, like, it's a very Sega Saturn-like um, platforming game. Um, you play, like, a dragon girl named Lilac. And her friends, like her animal friends, and you got to save a planet from like this horrible, evil dictator leader. It plays a little bit like Gunstar Heroes, Sonic the Hedgehog, and Rocket Knight Adventures. Yeah, it looks like a 16-bit uh, console game. Actually, um, from the color usage, I kind of see it's a little bit more like an early 32-bit. Oh, right, like a Saturn. Yeah, yeah it looks like a, yeah, it. Yeah, it has a very Saturn-like feel to it. It's beautiful. It's cute looking. It is. It's extremely cute looking. Um, besides that, um, I've been playing a lot of games on my 3DS as well because, you know, I use Mass Transit to get to work in New York City. So, like, on the bus ride, I get to play my 3DS every once in a while. Mm-hmm. So the big game I've been playing there is, um, I've been playing a second go-around on, is Shantae and the Pirate's Curse. Oh, I'm not familiar with that one. What's that about? Shantae is a genie girl. Who of course. Who is <laughs> oh, yeah, it's fucking awesome. Yeah, I'm going to say it. It is a fucking awesome game. Way Forward has all my money for this one. Um, Shantae is a genie girl who lives in a poor town named Scuttletown. Mm-hmm. And this is the third game in the series. It started as a little game on the Game Boy Color. 
And then huh. um, the second game, Risky's Revenge, was released for a Nintendo DSi as a DSiWare game. And this one now is on the 3DS and Wii U eShop. And it's also on Steam. Yeah, I'm looking at it on Steam right now. This is yeah. really cute. What great it art. It is really fun to play. And I I absolutely love it to pieces. It was like one of my favorite games of 2014. Hmm. Um, basically what it is is that in this third game, um, Shantae loses her genie magic. And Aww. she's forced to live as a human girl. Mm-hmm. And her nemesis uh, pirate lady named Risky Boots ropes her into this quest to find out like this horrible, evil curse of magic that's starting to spread over the land. And it's taking over her crew. And the two have got to find out what's going on. Hmm. Yeah. I actually did a review of it for um, for re- One More Castle when they were still around and still like active. Mm-hmm. Or the review of Great Game Day 2015. Hmm. And I'll give you a link to that so you can read it as well. Please. Uh, basically, like, yeah, I gushed like an idiotic schoolgirl over it, but I literally <laughs> thought it was one of the best games I've ever played of 2015. Oh, it looks, looks really cool. It is. It it's very cute. much worth the money. The soundtrack is excellent. The like the the graphics are beautiful. The gameplay is really good to get into. It's sort of like Metroid-ish. Mm-hmm. Like you got like the maps you got to go through. Like you know you can find secret areas. But yeah, it's really really fun. Oh, I, I recommend it highly. It happens to be fifty percent off on Steam right now too. Yeah, and go it looks it. like they uh, mute that they uh, when you take they use it to describe it as Metroid like. Mm-hmm. It is. It is very Metroid like in the way like the maps are laid out. Because you get like a bottom, like on the bottom screen, you see like the map being formed as you go along, mm-hmm. and there are hidden areas you can get into. Like when you grab different powers, you can come back to different islands and find new, like new hidden objects. And um, the whole idea is that in order to beat the game for properly, you've got to find twenty of Risky's crew members that got possessed by dark magic, and defeat them all and take their magic back in order to see the final boss. Huh. Yeah. Otherwise, what happens is that when you're fighting the final boss, he ends up, you know, he ends the battle early and runs. Hmm. Oh, neat. Yeah. Oh, I, I just did a massive spoiler there. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll act surprised when we get there. All right. But yeah, it, it's really worth playing. I really recommend it highly. That's one game. Um, another game that I was also playing as well, which I got pro- I got very pleasantly surprised about on 3DS was um, Azure Striker Gunvolt. Oh, what's that? Um, it was created by Intercreates, the guys who created the uh, the Mega Man Zero series and created the last two Mega Man games for Capcom. Mm-hmm. And um, basically what it is, it's kind of like a running gun in a sort of sense. Oh, like uh, Metal Slug style sort of? Sort of. Um, the premise is that you play as a boy named Gunvolt, who is, um, he, he basically, he has like lightning powers. <laughs> He's kind of like, like, there are kind of like mutants in the world called adepts that have, like, elemental powers. See, if you name your kid Gunvolt, you've kind of typecasted your kid. You know what he's going to grow up into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you know, and if you name your kid Brian, you know he's going to grow up to be a lazy turd. Oh, kiss my butt. Yeah. <laughs> Can't you feel the love? Uh-huh, I tried to. <laughs> but anyway, um, Gunvolt's power is, um, he has lightning powers, and he has a special gun that when he, the bullets hit enemies, he can actually tag them, and then he can zap them with his lightning powers. Hmm. And it's also pretty fun, too. It's it's actually really tough, too. I mean, like, it, it had me on the edge of my seat, like, how hard it can get. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it looks a little Mega Man, uh, a little Mega Man or uh, uh, that kind of style. Yeah. Well, it was. it is mostly the same creators because Intercreates was created. Um, Intercreates, as a software house, was a lot of Capcom staff, and a lot of them were Mega Man staffers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's some other ones that I've been playing as well. Um, 
I've been like, kind of also revisiting a couple of my older games. Um, I've been playing a lot of my old DOS stuff again. Oh, yeah, anything in particular? Um, well, I was playing Monster Bash uh, just like a few hours ago, mm-hmm. early in the morning, you know, because it's Halloween after all. Right. Yeah. Um, another one that I was also playing as well um, on my PS... Well, on my PS1, I was playing Castlevania Symphony of the Night again. Oh, yeah, that's supposed to be a really good one. Yeah, that's my one of my personal favorites of the series. Um, another game that I also got for Christmas last year, and I'm also replaying on the PlayStation 2, mm-hmm. is God Hand. Oh, I don't think I played that one. I've heard of it. God Hand, um, God Hand is just completely bonkers. <laughs> it's basically, it's like a beat-em-up that does not take itself seriously at all. You play as a guy named Gene, mm-hmm. whose hand got chopped off and got replaced by uh, like this old holy weapon called the God Hand, which basically allows him to like punch people's heads off, almost fits in the North Star style. Oh, that Sweet. is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, it is completely goofy because like, he has like this running in place animation while he's idle, which is really laugh. It's like it's laughably funny. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you got like flamboyant wrestlers who are bodybuilders. You got like, you know, superhero midgets. You got a gorilla with a luchador mask. It's just like it's completely off the rocket, but it's funny as hell. Now, is this a real time game or a turn based? It's a fighting game. It's like a brawler. Okay. Yeah, kind of like a final fight in 3D. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, it was developed by Clover Studio, who also did, uh, Beautiful Joe and Okami. Ah, so they're, oh, that's an interesting combination of games they've done. Yeah, there's kind of like their, their magnum opus, though, I've got to say, is Okami, and it's one of the few games that's like, that actually, like, I cry at the end, hmm. that beautiful it is. Oh, I hadn't played that. It looked amazing on the Wii. Oh, I actually would not recommend the Wii version. Really? I would recommend that if you have the PlayStation 3, get the HD version instead. Oh, just because of the, the resolution? Um, not just because of the resolution, because it, the Wii version was badly coded and oh. really badly unoptimized. It runs really slowly and really, like, you know, really choppy. It's like, it really detracts from the game. What a shame, because I heard that the whole paintbrush mechanic is perfect with the Wii mode. It, it is, but the problem is, it's like, it's really bad when, like, the game starts slowing down and getting really choppy during it. Oh, uh, uh, well, that's... maybe uh, we, we still, one of these days, have to get ourselves a Bluetooth adapter and the hardware to make a Wii emulator with a Dolphin emulator on our yeah, PCs. That, that's actually one I'm, I'm still trying to get working on my desktop as well because I've got a Bluetooth adapter in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I installed the libraries and I actually I actually have not gotten something to actually like measure the Wiimote, like the distance of it or its position. Right. Yeah, so that's something i got to work on. Yeah, yeah, that's apparently it can be tricky depending on the, the strength of the Bluetooth adapter you have and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and besides all those, I'm also trying to see if I can complete Wolfenstein 3D. The original six episodes, all on Death Incarnate mode. Oh, that's not... Is that even fun? <laughs> I actually got five out of six episodes done. Wow. I'm on. The, I'm doing the last one now. Holy moly, that's impressive. Yeah. I've never I, had well, any interest for, to do that. But thank God for quick save and quick load. Oh, that's essential, of course. Yeah, there's... Yeah. But yeah, I actually got through five out of six episodes already. Damn. Yep. I, I was like, I never did it before. I never, beat, I never beat Wolfenstein at the highest difficulty, and I always wanted to do it. And I, and I gotta say, like, one thing about id Software is that they were really sneaking a few of them. Oh, in in what way? In terms of Some like enemy places? Um, in the fourth episode, when you get to the boss stage, you know, like how you can get like the gold and silver key, or like sitting right by a guard. 
who's looking away from you. Oh, I don't remember, but I'll take your word for it, sure. Okay. Um, there's actually like a little hidden wall right next to him that you can open up and just grab another set of keys because if you shoot him to take the keys, about like 30 officers and 30 SS will come spilling out of the next room at you. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. I never knew that the uh, hidden rooms had any real strategic value. Yeah, and, well, in this case, they do because it's like you you shoot the guard and all of a sudden, like every guard in the next room will hear you and they'll come out and just splatter you all over the wall. That's great. Nice. Yeah. I, I've never had any interest to really challenge myself with that game. When I played it as a kid, I used the cheat codes like crazy, and I went on to finish it without cheating, but only on the normal difficulty. Oh, God. I I, I admit that I actually also beat the game first with um with the cheat codes, mm-hmm. but I like I decided I want to beat the game legitimately, finally. Oh, sure. It's just such a, a, a carefully crafted game that I figured I'm missing a lot by just seeing the sights. There's a strategy that you need to experience as well. Yeah, and you know, thank God I also have my strategy guide. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it actually saved my bacon in a lot of places, like where I can finally find like you know swaths of like you know ammo or health whenever I needed it. Oh right. Do the um, enemies uh, have more hit points on the higher levels? Um, no, they don't have any more hit points on higher levels, but it's like there's a lot more of them. Oh, okay, and they do more damage to you, I think, don't they? Yeah, because um. On the highest difficulties, a guard can actually take you out with one or two shots if they actually aim really well. Ooh. Oh, I didn't know aiming had... It, by aiming really well, do you mean that just that they hit you, or is there actually bodies? Like a hit scan is directly at you. Okay, yeah, yeah, because it doesn't yeah. matter where you hit someone. It's the same damage no matter what, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's the same hit points, but yeah. Um, I've actually noticed like if you hit them like, slightly off to the side, it only grazes them and it, and it only wounds them. Oh, I had no idea. That's something. Yeah, like, I've actually noticed like if you hit them dead on, they die in one or two shots. Oh, neat. Yeah, I, I guess it all depends on like your aim because like if you run around, say like with the with the Gatling gun, mm-hmm. and you just like go fire like crazy, I've actually noticed like some of the guards can take like ten bullets before they finally go down. Right. Yeah, but if you shoot them dead on, you could just hit them with like one you know one burst. Huh. Yeah, because yeah. the bullet spread is kind of out of your control to some extent at least, right? Yeah, to a degree. I guess like the way that the hit scan works in Wolfenstein is kind of weird. Like the more off center you are, the less it'll do to them. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's something I actually would like to study more about the engine. Yeah, well, it's all out there. I'm sure it's very well documented by now. It's been open source for a couple of decades. Yeah. So, yeah, it's something that's actually worth reading. I should actually do that. Just, like, download the uh, the Wolfenstein source code and look through it. Hmm. Yeah. But, um, yeah, those, those are some of the games I've been playing. Um, I'm not really... Like I'm not really anticipating anything except for the uh, the next Shantae game, which is coming out apparently in the holidays. Hmm. But um, I'm also waiting for the Steam holiday sale so you can also fill in some of my wish list. Oh yeah, right. There's a there's a Halloween sale going on there right now. Yeah, but right right now I got to kind of save a little bit of my money, mm-hmm. so I can't really buy much of anything. But um, the holiday sale, I'm definitely gonna be hitting the store up. Oh yeah, fair enough. There's usually a Black Friday one as well. Oh, there is. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, every everybody does that. Yeah, that that's another one I got to do too. But um, I think what I'll probably do because I do have a little bit of money to spare, I'm probably gonna buy Skullgirls because it's three dollars and seventy four cents. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's like a Street Fighter style game, isn't it? Yeah, I actually I played it with a friend of mine, and like I'm not like a huge, huge, huge fighting game fan, but I did kind of enjoy Skullgirls. Hmm. You should give it, it a try. It's, it's, it's kind of like a little bit baddie, a little bit nutty, but it was like really tight engine, really good gameplay. Hmm. Yeah. But, um, I mean, like, if I really wanted to play an old-school fighting game, of course, I'm always going to go back to Street Fighter 2. Specifically, yep. um, Street Fighter 2 Turbo is my favorite. Oh, I didn't like the faster version. I wasn't uh, fast I, enough. I actually liked it for its soundtrack more. Oh, in the... Uh, which version? The arcade version? 
Um, the PC version of Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo. I actually bought that um, back in 96. Was that a Red Book? Uh, it was. It was a Red Book audio, but I remember something very funny about it. Mm-hmm. Was um, the tracks were laid out where you had like the normal stage music, and then about halfway through it would fade out and go into like the, the critical mode music. I, I must have owned this. This sounds very familiar to me. Yeah, though the one that was distributed by Game Tech. That's got to be what I own somewhere. That sounds very familiar. I'm surprised actually that like Anatoly never posted that one on his on his feed. I guess he never played it though. Oh, perhaps. Yeah. the The one I remember though, like, well, speaking of Anatoly, was um, when I first met him last year. Mm. Uh, we met in a bar in Brooklyn, and I brought with me my copy of William Shatner's Tech War to show to him. Uh huh. And um, he. I think Akalo actually, um, we were talking about it, and I, he posted the uh, the picture of me and him with the game, and I, like, I'm putting on the goofiest face ever. Mm-hmm. It, that was fun, though. And then I showed him another world for the 3DS, which um, he had a blast with. Oh, how is it on that platform? It's excellent. Do they actually do like the 3D uh, positional visuals um, and everything? It's, it's very, very faint, but um, yeah, it's there. He didn't really do like a huge emphasis of it, though. Well, that would be really nice just because the art style is so flat and not really shaded very much. It would be perfect for that. Yeah. Um, so I, I haven't really played a lot of the games with the uh, the 3D effect on. Yeah, on nor would 3DS. I. I don't blame you. It gets really exhausting. Yeah, the new 3DS, so it's a lot better because on the old 3DS, it's really hard to track the position of it. Mm. So sometimes like you look at it at a funny angle and it just goes all, all blurry. Right. That's what I remember. Yeah, the new 3DS has much better face tracking, though, so I think when I upgrade to that, I'm going to probably use it a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we have yeah, to buy one. I actually enjoyed the, uh, the, 3D, the 3DS port. It was really excellent. Oh, I've got another 3DS port to recommend to you, by the way. We played it. Uh, some friends of ours brought uh, their 3DS over and showed us VVVVVV. I have that, actually, By too. Terry Cavanaugh. That- oh, it's phenomenal on that platform. Yeah, I bought that when I first got my 3DS, actually. That's what I would like to do with it, too. Although I've, I kind of know the whole game off by heart now, so it's not the most replayable game, but I just love that game to pieces. Yeah. Um, I also, well, I also got before Club Nintendo shut down, I bought Mario Kart 7 for free. Mm. Yeah, I, I used it for, because they had the thing when they were shutting it down was um, they allowed you to take like any game of theirs for free as like a going away gift. So I picked Mario Kart 7 because I never played it before. Oh, wow. I think we spent all of our Club Nintendo credits a year or two before they shut it down. Yeah, I, I use mine mostly on the virtual console stuff. What did we use ours on? Oh, we have... We bought some cool stuff with that. We have some stupid statue thing that has Bowser and the various Mario people. Um, We got uh, a a pack of Animal Crossing playing cards. And Uh, we we got... Oh, and you got that... uh, What's the Mario jellyfish called? Bloop bloop or something? Oh, the blooper? Blooper. Uh, uh, Yeah, like a paper fan. That's beautiful. Oh, man, I never got any of the actual, like, physical items. I just bought a lot of the games. Oh, see, we had a, we have a, a DSi and we have a Wii. And I believe you cannot, if you buy anything digitally on those platforms, mm-hmm. you can't transfer it to the next platform. Um, you Actually, you can if you buy a Wii and upgrade to a Wii U. You can actually move mm. all your items over to it. Okay, well, we, yeah. we no longer do the, the console thing. We don't have a TV anymore, so those days are done for us, we think. Yeah, I, I did the same. Like when I got my 3DS for Christmas, I moved all my uh, DSi purchases over to it, mm-hmm. and I just continued onward. Oh, we upgraded from a DS to a DSi XL, mm-hmm. and uh, I was pissed off that the games that I bought on their online store I couldn't move to the other platform. That's just mm-hmm. idiotic. 
It was, but, but um, I, I didn't have an issue when I bought my DSi, my three, when I got my 3DS and I moved my DSi stuff over. Mm-hmm. You just use the system transfer tool, and what it does is like it physically moves the games off of the DSi to the 3DS, and mm-hmm. then it formats the DSi and, re- and factory resets it. Oh, yeah, there was no such tool for the original DS, unfortunately. Yeah, that, that was the only one drawback, I guess, because um, I, I guess the transitionary stage, like the DSi was the start of their next, like their next uh, platform. Right. Yeah, so that's what they did. They just went from like DS, DSi is their evolutionary platform, and then 3DS is the next line. Right. And yeah. that's a shame because I bought a bunch of stuff on my original DS. We had an, uh, an Oregon Trail game, which was really good. Yeah, it was. I had, oh, I couldn't believe it. I had um, a downloadable version of Dragon's Lair. Uh-huh. which I think it was down to like 20-something megabytes, and it looked really good. I mean, it's a low-resolution screen. I think it's like, I don't know, 400 by 300 or something like that, the original well, DS. Uh, the original DS is 256 by 192. Oh, so that explains it. But it looked really good, and it was playable, and there were no scenes missing. I had a really good time with that. I wonder what kind of like how they actually uh, did the port. Did they actually – I don't think they probably did like full video. Or they probably did something like the Amiga did maybe. Um, It sure looked like – like high frame rate normal video to me, which was surprising. On one of my previous, uh, well, see, yeah, they probably had like really good video compression. Well, on one of my previous episodes, I talked about something that uh, it was mentioned in. Uh, uh, there, there was a there's another podcast that I love called. Oh, if I loved it so much, I could think of the name of it. Uh, Lost Treasures of Gaming, uh-huh. and they interviewed a guy who ported Dragon's Lair to the Game Boy Color, which Whoa, was that's awesome. Which was like a four megahertz machine with like four megabytes cartridges and mm-hmm. talked about the amazing amount of work that he did to fit it on this like i think it might have been an eight megabyte cartridge or something which made it much more expensive and it almost didn't get published but oh, it looks incredible no scenes missing i think a few frames of animation are missing and it doesn't have digital audio but it's it, a, an amazing feat of engineering and design yeah those, those are the things that like i actually love to see sometimes when like somebody does me too take- yeah, like an 8-bit machine, like the Game Boy Color. And yeah, it's only like a Z80 CPU in there. Yeah. Well, similarly, like- one of my favorite 4K uh, demos is uh, the first level of Descent with no enemies. But it's the whole level, and it has music. And it's a demo that goes on for like three or four minutes in four friggin' kilobytes with textures. And uh, the, your your uh, camera moves and does loop-de-loops and moves oh, around awesome. the environment. It's incredible. Oh my God. This I'm going to have to see. Can you put a link to this in the notes? Oh, gladly. I'll uh, look for it while we're talking. Yeah, because I this I've got to see now because uh, demos, the demo scene has always been like a hugely impressive thing for me. Me too. Like, yeah, and um, I remember like when I was younger, <clears throat> my school, my school district in New Jersey, we didn't really get rid of our 8-bit computers mm-hmm. until like I bet think about it, like when I was a senior, when we finally started getting rid of some of the Apple IIs that we had, mm-hmm. we had specifically Apple IIEs. And I actually got very personal, like I got very intimate with the machines to the point where like I knew them inside and out. Mm. So I used to write like personal demos on them, even though like they weren't the greatest of anything. But I remember getting tricks like, <clears throat> getting tricks like how to get the speaker to like, you know, play like almost semi-digital music. Really, it's really impossible to do because remember the speaker on that was a one-bit speaker, almost like the IBM PC speaker. Yeah, right, the square wave thing. Yeah, 
But um, if you know how to oscillate it just right, you can actually get it to play almost like a decent arpeggio. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Or you can get like almost semi-digital music coming out of it. Oh, that's right. Uh, well, uh, the first Star Control game played mod music on the PC speaker. Yeah, which was mighty impressive, too. Amazing. Like a four-channel a four-channel digital sound on a one-channel... Uh, yeah, on a one-bit speaker. One-bit speaker, that's right. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, but it was really impressive when people used to do that. Um, I remember some of the games on the IBM PC for DAWs when um, they used to do, like, pump digital voices through the speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, what was there? There was one game I... Re I forgot the name of it that actually played, like, full music as well besides Star Control that actually played, like, a full music track through the PC speaker. Hmm. I can't um, think of any offhand. Yeah, I forgot the name of it. It's, it escapes me right now, me and my senile brain. Sure, and that's especially <laughs> impressive because that took so much CPU. Yeah. Usually your computer would... for the title screen and nothing else. Oh, it could be. Yeah, usually your computer would just like lock up and do nothing else while it was controlling the, the sound chip. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember where I saw it on. I think it was on old school PC that I read it. If I could find it, then I could probably like post a link to it here. Okay. I, I sent you a link, by the way, to that 4K Descent demo. It's okay. from 1997 for DOS, and it has music. Oh, cool. I see it. All right, I see it now. I'm going to probably watch it after the after we get done. Oh, sure. It's ridiculous what they accomplish in 4 kilobytes. It's assembler. Yeah. Um, what, one of my favorite ones, though, one of my favorite demos, of course, is the Absolute Classic, which is Second Reality. Oh, yes, of course. I love that one. We have... Um, I have a bunch of uh, like screenshot printouts all over oh. the walls of our living room, and one of them is from Second Reality. Oh man, I, I want to actually take like a nice like a screenshot from Second Reality and just blow it up into something I can hang on my wall too. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I think I found the um, hmm. the games. Hold on a second. Uh, two of the games that were for a PC for DAWs that actually had um, music like digital music pumped through the PC speaker: uh, Mach Three and apparently Space Racer. Okay, I don't think I. Did I play Mach 3? Um, I don't know. I don't remember ever playing Mach 3 either. Hmm. That would explain why I can't remember it. Let's okay. see. 1988. Wow. That's old. That's 1988. Old. Yep. Uh, I wow. Was 10. I would have been, been 5. Mm. <laughs> this does not look from. Oh, let's see. Atari ST DOS version. It's very pink. It's in CGA. Oh, so many. So much pink. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> I remember my old IBM PC 5150 that we never progressed beyond CGA on that machine, mm -hmm. but we did pop in an ad lib card into it. So we had four color, four color graphics, and of course OPL2 sounds. Mm -hmm. And those are good times. Oh, for sure. Yeah. As Anatoly will tell you, he'll beat you over the head with his ad lib. <laughs> I, I'm not going to disagree with him because, like, I grew up um, with the AdLib and then the Sound Blaster and then the Sound Blaster 16. Mm -hmm. And I remember one another computer that we had for a while had a Pro Audio Spectrum 16 card in it. Oh, nice! That's a lot of uh, sound cards in a pretty short amount of time. Yeah. Well, um, we did have multiple computers in our house. Uh, most of them were like, a lot of them were like hand-me-downs, and a lot of them were like donated to us mm. in this sort of sense. But. Um, my machine was actually built from parts from a place that my dad used to work at um, mm. when the owner had the owner had passed away. Mm. And um, the owners of the building where the office was in wanted to, you know, they wanted to shut down for failure to pay rent because he was gone. Right. So everybody else who worked in the building who hadn't been there in a while just ran to the office and just ransacked and grabbed everything before it got thrown out. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So um, the owner had an IBM PC-AT 
And um, I guess he was going to actually, he bought a, a 486 motherboard for it, you know, that fit the case. Mm-hmm. So I've got the PCAT with the motherboard nice. and all the hardware that was attached to it. And I installed the motherboard. I got a 486 and some RAM for it. Mm-hmm. And that became my computer. Oh, outstanding. Yeah. So I ripped out the old 286 motherboard. I actually hung it on my wall for a while because I loved the design of it. Mm. And I put the 486 in there. And that machine, like, I love the PCAT case because it was so huge inside. Yep. You know, you could fit like several hard drives and a floppy drive. And, you know, I found a CD drive that fit in there and I ran with that. And you could slice your hand off real good with it, too. Yeah. But the CD drive I had run, you know, failed to work because it was like one of those, like, really, like, it was an early one. It said it was uh, double speed, and it actually turned out to be single speed with a really bad bus. So I ripped it out, and I just put in another hard drive. Mm-hmm. And then I just put an external CD drive onto my machine, which was a proper double speed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, We so, one of our earlier episodes was about early CD-ROM games and experiences, too. So we had similar issues. I had to... Uh, I, when, when I bought Mist, it was incompatible with the brand of, two, of double speed CD-ROM drive that I had. So we had to... Exchange it at the computer store for a different brand of double speed CD ROM drive. Yeah. Oh, I remember um, you talking about was, that. Um, mm. part of a kit that came with the Pro Audio Spectrum. Mm. And the first game I ever got on CD separately was The Seventh Guest. Oh, very nice. That was my first CD ROM game as well. Yeah. But it turned out that it was a misleading advertisement on the CD drive, which is why I ripped it out and I just got an external CD drive instead. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Bianca's first CD drive was similar. It was the Sound Blaster Multimedia Kit or something like that? Yeah. But I think that might have been uh, a, a more standard part. Yeah. Um, I remember also, too, for a brief time when Creative released the 3DO Blaster. Yeah, I, I wish I had one. Yeah, I wish I did, too, because I always was fascinated by the 3DO, but it was $700, and my parents said, no way. Of course. <laughs> of that's course. What, that's what they do. Yeah, it's because I also had the NES at the time. If mm. they shit on your games and tell you you can't have something that would make your life way better. Well, and helps. I'm going to do that when we have kids. Of course. Well, it helps when your kids' dreams aren't a million dollars. Yeah. It was an but, expensive console. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mine was, um, the 3DO was $700. I had the NES, and it was basically like, well, you have this one console. That's enough. Oh, little do they know. Yeah. But um, if I had gotten the 3DO, I remember the 3DO Blaster actually had a specific CD drive that it only worked with. Ah, I didn't know that. Yeah. um, I I think it was a rebranded Panasonic one that Creative used to bundle with it. Uh, Makes sense. Yeah. Or you could get it standalone. And Mm. I remember, like, nobody ever had the full kit with the CD drive. They only had the standalone, you know, the standalone card. Mm. Oh, so what? They couldn't play some games or any games? You couldn't play any games because if you didn't have that specific drive, you could not use the card at all. And they didn't sell it with the card? Oh, they did sell it with the card, but it was, you know, limited edition bundles, I think. That's silly. Yeah. It's a prerequisite. And I could never find in any of the stores any of the bundles. I only found the card standalone. That's crazy. Yeah, That's like so I had to skip out on the 3DO Blaster. Yeah, yeah, so did most of us. Well, the 3DO Blaster was a good 350 bucks or so, wasn't it? It was, but it came with, um, I think it came with like three games and a demo mm-hmm. and a controller. Oh, so some value. Yeah, and I think the kit was like $500 or so, and it had the CD drive. Yeah, that's still pretty steep. Yeah. Because then you well, need the whole computer, it, too. It would have been really cool. Like It was like one of the first, like, you know, hard, I guess like the first, like, contained hardware for your PC that I, like, fully ran another system. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the closest equivalent I can even think of that was in retail stores would have been Bleem, the PlayStation 1 emulator. Yeah, and um, the other one, too, that was for Mac OS, the Connect 6 Virtual Game Station. Oh, I don't know that one. 
Yeah, it was a Mac OS only one, and I think it was the first commercial PlayStation emulator, and Bleem was the second. Hmm. And they were unlicensed, of course. Of course. Yeah, and then Sony was like, yeah, you can't sell these. Right. Yeah, and they tried to shut them down, and then I remember Bleem Cast. Right, for the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast. That's right. Yeah. Virtual Game Station, though, um, I did download it like recently, and I ran it on one of my old Macs, and it actually had fairly good compatibility for what it was worth, but not every game ran. I think like more of the 2D games were more successful on it. Oh, right. Well, they used a lot less CPU, and I'm sure. I think the... Yeah. Both the Dreamcast and the PlayStation 1 did weird stuff with, like, Z-buffering and, like, the axes and the order to draw polygons in from front to back. And yeah, a lot, of, a lot of, like, crazy little techniques that people, like, developers use to make their games run a lot more optimized, a right. lot faster. exactly. Yeah. Um, Ninten well, the Nintendo 64 had a lot of crazy techniques to it, too, especially when it only had, like, 4K buffer, I think, for textures. Yeah, that was a very limited machine. They did some pretty cool stuff with it. Yeah, Rare was one of the ones that did the best with it. They are brilliant programmers, Rare. Yeah. Like, Conker's Bad Fur Day, even, like, 15 years later, still impresses me. Oh, didn't that have, like, an extra memory chip or something, or it required one? Uh, no, I think it ran stock. Oh, wow. Oh, no, it was a Donkey Kong game, I think. That Donkey came Kong with... 64 actually required the expansion pack. I think it was, like, the first ones that was, it was mandatory. Right. Yeah. Um, Majora's Mask, it was also mandatory, and it used it mostly to, like, you know, draw more of the map in the distance, like, better draw distance. Right. And some slightly better textures. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it did not look like significantly different from the Ocarina of Time. Yeah, no, it didn't. It's weird how Nintendo likes to uh, like fork their system every now and then with an upgrade. Like with the Wii, they had, I forget what they called it, Motion Plus. Yeah. Which was like a thing a thing you stick onto your Wiimote and it makes it more sensitive or something. Yeah, it's, and then they built the Wiimotes that actually had it built in already. Yeah, so it's just very strange. That's yeah. kind, of the, kind of the antithesis to the whole idea of a console. Yeah, but um, the one thing I am, I am going to give props to it, though, is that it's a lot less bulky in your hands. Oh, okay, that's, that's good to know. a little bulky thing sitting out on the bottom. Right. We, we just had the first generation Wii, and boy, did we love that thing. Oh, it was so awesome. Wii Sports and Cooking Mama is what I loved, and um, WarioWare was yeah. my favorite mm -hmm. non-Wii Sports game. Yeah, it was just really great, because it, it was just so different. Before that, we had, like, you know, the regular controllers, but this... It felt like a whole new generation of gaming, which was amazing. I just remember the weekend. We played it all weekend when we got it. I went to work, and my elbow hurt so much <laughs> from had, playing tennis had, and bowling. You know how some people get tennis elbow? He had wee elbow. Yeah, yeah he like, did. Me, me. Oh, I'm going to go all the way home now because my elbow hurts. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, my um, with my Wii experience, like some of the games I actually got, um, one I actually loved to pieces was A Boy in His Blob. Oh, did, was there a Wii version? I only know um, the it NES was a one. New, it was a brand new Boy in a Slob game for the Wii. Damn, I had no idea. Yeah, it was really, really fun, too. It was actually much more playable. It had such a really nice, like, lighthearted environment to it. It was such a feel-good game. Hmm. Yeah, I had that. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, one of my favorite games on the Wii was uh, No More Heroes. Oh, another Suda 51. That was so brilliant. Yeah, so I funny. Loved it. it was so funny. The soundtrack was like three hours long. The cutscenes yeah. were all like riveting and insanely crazy. Yeah, great. But game. Uh, it was also it was tough as nails, especially like when I got to the uh, the third assassin Shinobu. Mm -hmm. Oh God, she put me under several times before I can actually get a pattern. Oh, I I, uh, I didn't finish it. I came close, and then I watched all the cutscenes on YouTube. Yeah, that was very uh, amusing. Yeah, but she was one of the hardest fights in that game. That like even from the beginning, because she had like this desperation attack, hmm. where like when she's like super low on health, she'll rush you, 
And if she catches you with her sword, she'll slice you to ribbons and then essentially kill you right there on the spot. Oh, that's obnoxious. Yeah. But it, it was really, really hard. Like, once I started learning how to dodge it, she became, like, you know, really easy to finish off. Mm, that's she, She's, like, at her, at her final string of hell. And that game was pretty uh, forgiving with its save points, too. Thank yeah. goodness. It was also bloody as hell. Yes, it was. It was really bloody. Like fountains of blood and like fountains of coins. <laughs> yeah, it was so no, stimulating. I love the, the mooks when you fight, like when you kill them, and like they go Mars Bleed. Uh huh. <laughs> and so unlike Nintendo, yeah. considering its history. Yeah, I know. Considering they released uh, Mortal Kombat, where you sweat instead of bleed. I know. It's like and then Mortal you're Kombat punching the sweat off me every time you punch me in the mouth. <laughs> yeah, and then Mortal Kombat Two, yes, was full on blood, and it's it actually sold well. Yeah, and then um, Nintendo also had uh, Mad World. You know, they allowed Mad World to be released for the Wii as well. Oh, Mad World, as in oh no, that was the uh, Suda Fifty One, wasn't it? No, that was uh, Platinum Games. That was the guys that were Clover that they became Platinum Games. That was their first release for the Wii. Oh yes, that's right. This was yeah. this on. It's in black and white with the guy with the chainsaw arm. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing yeah. this in a magazine or something. I've never seen it in motion. This is beautiful. It's actually pretty fun too. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's really, really fun as well. It's just completely out there as well. Hmm. Yeah. Very um, cool. I have those. Um, what else do I have? I have Sin and Punishment, which is also really fun. Mm -hmm. um, the one I wish I could have gotten was Xenoblade Chronicles, but that that became too expensive for me now. Mm. Yeah, I'll probably get that on the new 3DS when I get it. Did we have anything else worthy on the Wii? We had um, Brain Age. Brain Age is always fun. I thought, no, that was, was on the uh, DS that we oh, had. Oh, no, we had something else. Um, Let me see. Something similar. It was a wedding Brain gift. Academy. Brain Academy. Yeah, yeah that was yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, that was from a, from a friend of ours. Very nice guy. Him and his girlfriend. He knows a lot about computers. We should get him on the show. Yeah, we will. Mm -hmm. I'll talk to uh, him and see if he'll... Uh, if he's be if he's willing to join us on a podcast, good. Unfortunately, he keeps kind of strange hours, so it might mean that we do a podcast at a strange hour. Yeah, let's go talk to him. Yeah, I remember um, last episode, Akago was talking about um, another Code R. Oh yes. Yeah, and that was a game I really wished I could get to play because it's it, it was like when I saw the magazine like reviews of it, it just looked so damn good. And I did play Trace Memory on the DS, and I enjoyed it a lot. I actually also enjoyed um, Hotel Dusk and Last Window. Mm -hmm. And it's like another Codar was one of those games I really wish I could get. Yeah, looks really yeah. Uh, immersive. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to probably hit up Akago and ask him if he can hook me up with a copy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's one of those games I want on my shelf. Mm, nice. Yeah. Oh, is it only available in Europe? Is that why? Um, it was released only in Japan and Europe. And yeah, if you want to get it in English, you got to get the European copy. Right. Are those even compatible with uh, North American consoles? Oh, uh, I can mod mine. Ah, okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind modding mine because uh, I have the Wii U now. So, you know, I play all my Wii games on, like most of my Wii games on that. But I can always keep the Wii around for, like, you know, modded stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, the benefits of still having the consoles. Yeah, and that's right. That's right. Not, I know a store I could get one for super cheap if I need it. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah. abundance of those, overabundance. We have our consoles still. We just have nothing to plug it into. Yeah, we have our consoles in boxes. Boxes and boxes. I, yep. Yeah, and uh, my, my nerd creds also, too. Uh, my brother got two Famicoms. Oh, wow. wow. Those are Real beautiful. Real Famicoms. I love how those look so much. The weird yeah, I love the design of switches. them as well. He got um, both the original model and an AV model. Oh, AV model. I haven't seen that. Um, it looks kind of like the, the remodeled NES. 
But of course, with the cartridge slot for a Famicom cartridge. Oh yeah, that is a really attractive looking thing. It looks like yeah. uh, kind of Russian in its design somehow to me. It does very, very like slick, very like you know, like almost kind of like very like modern, almost industrial. But yeah, it's it's so tiny too. They're like they're so lightweight. I can literally toss them in my hand. Oh, they are. The controllers oh. look bigger than the original Famicom though. Yeah. Oh, the, I love the way it looks sound. and. It kind of looks like a Super Nintendo with the cartridge standing up as opposed to going into the uh, yeah. compartment, which yeah. we had in the North American the, yeah, version. Yeah, the design aesthetic was to match the Super NES. Oh, I see. Yeah, because yeah. the Famicom lasted forever. Mm -hmm. That was it, a long It lasted for 20 life. years. Yeah. Yeah, into uh, the 2000s, I think, didn't it? Uh, 2003 is when they finally discontinued it. That's crazy. What a yeah. lifespan. And that was that too. It was like a 4 megahertz machine or something, wasn't it? It was 1.79 megahertts. Oh, my gosh. That's it's a sixty-five oh two. Oh, that's oh, oh, that's crazy. And the controllers, these ones here. Yeah, the controller for this new one looks like the Super Nintendo as well. Mm, yeah. It looks so slick and it looks like it would be a good thing to hold. Yeah, it looks that's like blocky. it doesn't dig into your hand like the regular NES yeah. one did. Yeah, um, but we have ours with um, the Famicom Disk System, which we had, oh. which we purchased. It was uh, freshly repaired when we got it, so it works perfectly. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, because the uh, the Famicom Disk System actually was really infamous. For breaking down really easily because the belt that drives the uh, the disc motor mm. was a proprietary size and it had a tendency to like warp and you know break and crack uh. too much stress. So if it broke down, of course you couldn't use the disc on it anymore, and right. it was really hard to replace. Oh geez, I'm looking at a picture of it. That is an ugly looking device. Yeah, oh, what that's the crazy. What the hell is that thing underneath? It's that's a floppy, weird. floppy disk that's drive. That's floppy system. That Nintendo actually released games on floppy disk. Mm -hmm. Oh, but I love on the side here how they have a uh, compartment for the controllers. That's really smart. Oh yeah, that's the original Famicom. The controllers yeah. clip right on. We saw one at the uh, the the game museum. Oh yeah, that's in Bolton's place. Yes, that was cool. But I just love how they clip on the side. It's really good design. Yeah, it is. Good I design. wish they had that on the uh, one that we had. Well, then you wouldn't misplace them. Right. Yeah. I, I think the the thing though is like the design aesthetic for the Famicom was for the idea like in Japan where you got like smaller homes, you know, you need something that's a little bit more compact, like something you could just slide right underneath the TV and stick away for storage. Right. So that's why like the controllers were hardwired because they assumed like Nintendo assumed that, you know, people would have their TV on a stand and the Famicom sitting on the floor right in front of them, and they would be sitting like right there on the floor playing the game. Right. So they designed it with the aesthetic that, like, you would be right by the TV playing, and, you know, that's how it worked. On the, on the American NES, though, I think they designed it with the idea that it wasn't really a video game. It was more of an entertainment device. Mm -hmm. So they designed it to look like something that would blend in with your VCR and your stereo. Exactly. Like, I mean, it would look nice on the shelf with all the rest of your electronics. Yeah, set top. Yeah. And it would be something that you would need longer cords for because you would probably be sitting on a couch instead of on, you know, on the floor. Right. Except most of us, most of us, the ones when we played when we were kids, sat on the floor, five yeah. inches from the TV with mom saying, move away, it's going to wreck right. your vision. Microwave my vision eyeballs. was already toast by the time I was born. Both my parents wore glasses. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, mine too, like me too. Like I, I had to get glasses when I was eight. Like yeah. my myopia had gotten so bad by that point that I needed glasses. Yep, same here. Yeah. I got glasses because uh, my parents figured I couldn't see shit since I couldn't hit the ball and I played the Little League. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, I do agree, though, like going back a little bit, like I like the Japanese aesthetics a little bit more because like it's it's much more simple. It's much more compact. It's really good for like a small house or a small apartment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I also love the, the idea like the cartridges on the Famicom that they come in all sorts of colors. Yeah, oh, I like that too. It was rare that that happened with the NES and SNES. It yeah. did happen. 
Yeah, it Just happened more frequently. with the N64, but um, I, I love like I open up my my box of Famicom games and I see like yellow and pink and green and orange and black and white and they're like, oh, it's a rainbow of colors. Yeah, it makes it easier to find it too. Yeah, especially like when I have all the Mega Man games because like they all come in unique colored cartridges, so it's really easy to just pick up the right color and you got your game. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, um, that's that was so cool that they color coded all the Mega Man games. Yeah, it is. Yeah, even the um, even the Mario games. Well, uh, Mario One and Mario Three are both yellow cartridges, but um, Super Mario USA, which is the um, the US, you know, our Super Mario Brothers Two here in this in America. Oh, is that what they called it, USA? Yeah, it was basically our Super Mario Brothers two got back came back to them as Super Mario USA. Oh, funny! Neat. Their Super Mario Brothers two was just a the like, lost a levels. Lo- oh, yeah, lost really levels! I almost passed one. that. It was stupid hard. Yeah, it was stupid it was really hard, and hard. I almost My passed it. it. And then he tells me he he texts me like prepare for death. <laughs> he bought it on eBay and he tells me prepare for death, and I'm like, oh shit! Oh, the fucking poison mushroom that. Thank you oh, so that many times. Me no when I played it the first time in Mario All Stars, yeah, that pissed me off to no end. It's like, ooh, mushroom, doink, and yep, you're dead. Uh. <laughs> I never enjoyed it for that reason. It was not yeah. just not just because it was hardcore. It was just I, I it was like not it was memorization. Yeah, it was ridiculously hard, and that you know that game was like I can't believe I got six stages in before I finally died. Hmm. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's a new world record, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I've actually seen like <laughs> let's plays of people beating the game, and I'm like, how the hell? Oh, uh, we uh, love watching a show called Game Center CX. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Um, it's a Japanese game. Uh, it's a g- Japanese show. Yes. Where uh, the host uh, Arino is uh, like the, uh, the he's like the employee of this fictitious company, and his full time job is to complete retro Famicom and Super Famicom games uh-huh. um, in like one sitting. And so it's typical for him to spend like 10, 11, 12, 14 hours just playing one game. And they sort of cut to the more entertaining parts. But he's a really funny, nice guy. He's a stand-up comedian and uh, is, is becoming better and better at these old retro games over time. So uh, one of his episodes was about Super Mario 2 and had one of his fans come in, like drive to the TV, Japan. To, I forget what the, the, the Fuji TV, I think, is yeah. his, yeah. his channel. Uh, dro- drove to their studio and uh, showed him, like, he will sometimes pass it uh, the controller to someone to beat a difficult part for him. And so mm-hmm. he passed it on to this fan of the show who did it in, like, one easy take. And then he hits the reset button and hands it back to him. <laughs> made him play oh, the whole thing over. That was brilliant. <laughs> I just rem- and yeah. then the look on Arano's face was priceless. It's a great, great, great show. It's hard to find... Uh... Oh, thank you, dear. It's hard <laughs> to find subtitled. Not all of the uh, episodes are subtitled, but he's up to, like... 13 or 14 seasons, I think, mm-hmm. now. And it's just an incredibly entertaining show. Yes, it okay. is. This one's going to have to go in the notes, too, because i got to see these. Oh, for sure. Yes, it's worth watching. And they don't just have him playing games. They have him going out and talk and uh, doing visiting arcades, all sorts of things, conventions, and even talking to uh, big names in the industry. That's right. But each the, the, the core show is that each, uh, yeah. each episode he's playing a different uh, Japanese game. Yeah, but um, the objective of... It- of, yeah, uh, this just, looks actually really interesting to see because it'll also be good to like you know diversify my Famicom collection a little bit more too. Oh, it will. He he plays really diverse stuff. He plays yeah. really diverse stuff. Some of it is just ridiculously hard looking. Yeah. I because like um one site that I like to look at often to look for new games is mm. um Hardcore Gaming One Hundred One. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, and um on there like I've actually found a few other games like um one game that I found 
for the Famicom was called Gimmick, which was developed by Sunsoft. Mm-hmm. And then um, when uh, my friend Edgar had hosted, like he featured um, an episode of based on you know Sunsoft games for Retro Region Revival Hour, mm-hmm. he selected one of the tracks for Gimmick, and like listening to the music just attracted me further to the game, so I grabbed the ROM of it mm-hmm. and started playing it. And I'm like, oh, I got to get a copy of this on cartridge. And I look on eBay. Of course, the cartridge is really hard to come by, so it's like three hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Nice. So I, I can't do that. No. I got to pay rent. <laughs> right. Yeah. But um, it, it's it's worth playing like however way you can get it. Like if you have to download a ROM of it, do download a ROM of it. It's really 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 fun. I'm looking at it for Game Boy, it looks a lot like Kirby. Yeah, it it kind of is, but it's like it actually has a really good like physics and inertia based system to it. Huh. Yeah, but um, you know, Hardcore Gaming got one one got me a few games like I you know I otherwise wouldn't have played. And having read them for years, I finally contributed an article to them. Oh, cool! What yeah. was it about? Um. Remember, you ever see the DOS game Depth Dwellers, which no. I believe was featured on Lazy Game Reviews at one point? Don't think I have. Depth Dwellers. Yes. Um, and second yeah, top is the oh, it's a, oh, it's a build game. Yeah, it's a, no, it's not a build game. It's a first-person shooter, like one of these fly-by-night Me Too um, first-person shooter games that came out after Doom. Yeah, Doom clone, sure. Oh, it just a poor like man's him. Doom is what it's, LGR calls it. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. It is so awful. Oh, well, I'll stick your article in the show notes. Um, yeah, it, yeah, but it is literally, like, so damn awful. Like, I even had a really hard time trying to play it just to write the article and even just to take the screenshots. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's amateurish on every level possible. Like, the, the weapons look like something, like, they look like bolts, like, they pulled out of Home Depot or whatever. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. And all the sounds are these guys, like, whoever did the sounds probably did them all with their mouth. Because everything sounds kind of like a <laughs> It looks kind of remin- It's like somewhere between Chex Quest and Super Noah's Ark, sort of. Yeah. The the level of it looks kind of like um, it's all 90 degree walls mm-hmm. and like two textures in height. Right. But it really, it just looks like shit. Like one of the screenshots I put it in the article, like the textures look like wall speakers. <laughs> oh, too funny. Probably- huh? Uh-oh. Uh, well, it's not our internet for once. For once, did we lose him? I don't think so, but I heard something click. Oops. Okay, so... You got the link, though, right? I've got the link. Uh, hang on, I'm gonna call him back. Yeah, good idea. Oh, wait. Oh! I unplugged and replugged. Oh, I gotcha. Alright, I'm sorry about that. No sweat. I think my uh, I think my my microphone just probably clicked out briefly. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's what we heard. So okay. we for our first thought was did our internet go out? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I guess we can edit all that. We'll just keep it going. Oh sure. Well, uh, we're we're uh, starting to wind down in our time. I wanted uh, Bianca to talk about what she's played this week. All right, go for it. Okay, let's see. I played a cup. I played a couple of games, starting with uh, Three Fourths Home. Mostly, I'd say this is. An atmospheric game, since mm-hmm. all you really do is just hold the joystick in one direction so you can drive. Uh-huh. But the other joystick you use to really select dialogue options. It's an interesting game. It's really, it's literally gray and white. But mm-hmm. it's um, a conversation you have with your family as you're trying to get home to beat this tornado. And it just, the mood consistently changes the closer you get to home. And you slowly learn about your family as 
the closer you get to home just by the dialogue options that you pick and you read. So in a way, it's kind of like gone home, but instead of walking around the house, mm -hmm. you're driving home against the clock to try and get there before this tornado does, and the rain keeps coming down harder and harder, and the, and the sky keeps getting darker. And then you get, and then there's actually a prologue where you get more information about this person you're playing as, and you can uh, choose to in the prologue, no, the epilogue actually, sorry, the epilogue mm -hmm. to um, tell your mom more about what's bothering you and to actually make up and just have her realize that you're have you're having a hard time and that you didn't ignore her for. Uh, you didn't ignore her that you just were having a difficult time and she helped you or you can be a complete that turd of a kid and just not tell her anything hmm. and it's like through text right it it's almost a, looks like a twine game but with graphics and some interaction yeah it looks like a twine game mm -hmm. and it's it, you get more of the twine feel with the epilogue mm -hmm. and it, but you do get i didn't realize that i could pick dialogue options because the dialogue is a little grayed out as, at least in the uh, first part of the game because of the uh, colors. But once you realize that it's a faded text beneath it and it is gray enough that you can see it, you can uh, change the direction of the conversation. It's quite interesting. Hmm. Cool. I, I've and, been meaning to play with Twine a little bit more. I've actually been dying to know more about how Twine works. Oh, it's dead easy. Yeah. It's really yeah. fun. What's yeah, further yeah. interesting about this game is there is specifically an achievement that rewards you for exploring the extra section, which gives you more information and it has stories supposedly written to be like written from her brother's point of view and it has um, the portfolio, she her project that is talked about as a point of uh, interest in the game and there's a whole part of the, uh, and there's a whole uh, hour of music to listen to that you can put on as a radio channel in the background <laughs> while you play something else or do something else. All right, this is when I came home from work was when you were trying to get the <laughs> achievement where you listen to the whole soundtrack in the in-game jukebox for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, there's That's actually an achievement cool. to listen for the whole thing from start to finish without interrupting. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually something now I'm going to have to probably check out. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. Uh, Any others? Let's see. Yes. Um, What's this? Oh, is this that piece of shit hidden object game you were playing? Yeah, that's the find the shit game. So find we, the shit. Yeah, find the shit. Grim Legends, a Forsaken Bride. Grim Stup Cutscene, the stupid actor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The uh, the find the shit stuff was not too bad, and it had decent puzzles, and you put it together, and you actually have to solve puzzles in the point and click style. But to get there, you have you also saw you also find hidden objects. So it's one step above find the shit that used to that uh, I would classify this as. I don't care about the story. I just enjoy uh, putting the puzzles together and trying to find all the clues and getting to the end. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. As, are these also on Steam? Yes, everything I have pretty much is on Steam. All right. I, I think um, I have uh, Brian and, um, on Steam. I don't know if you guys share an account or not. Nope, we have our own accounts. All right, so I, should, I think you probably should add each other then. Mm. Uh, sure. Let me see. What's my What's my name this week? Mm. Um, this week, oh, I'm you're... Bratty Budgie. <laughs> Bratty Budgie. Bratty Budgie. All right. I'll find. Let's see if I can find you then. Is it all one word? <laughs> it's two words. I never know what iteration of misbehaved and bird she is from week to week. Um. Let me see. Further down is Shadow Warrior, which you already mentioned playing. Oh yeah, the remake. Yeah. Yep. All I know is I can hack and slash everything. Doesn't that game have like the strongest opening 15 minutes or so? 
It has, yeah. You can chop <laughs> you all these people. Oh, yeah. Hatch that. Off goes the head. Oh, the head on the ground. Stab, 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 stab. It's like uh, No More Heroes level gore, which is, it is. great. It's over the top funny, though. It, it, it is, really is. really over the top funny. I just love the opening cutscene where, like, Lo Wang is listening to You Got the Touch. And he sings along, I know. Oh, I'm like, come on, just get this over with. I want to skip this. Oh, I thought that was hilarious. Then, like, I, I love, like, when he picks up the phone. You got Wang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a surprisingly good remake. Mm-hmm. It was. Good it was dialogue. Even if it was stupid. I didn't stick with it. I didn't finish it, but I played it for, well, I'll find out, but for several hours at least. Shadow Warrior, no, not classic. I don't like that one as much, actually, mm. as the remake. The remake, oh, I played it for three hours, probably closer to four. Mm-hmm. It was very good, I thought. Um. Oh, sorry. Let me put your list back on screen. Okay. Here you go. Oh, I seem to have a friend. Lombardic <laughs> Calculus. Is that you? Lombardic Calculus. Calculus. Yes, that's me. <laughs> Lombata calculus was Lombata. That's a that's a little festive. Yeah, the forbidden the forbidden Steam account. Okay, you have been added. (laughs) All right, I see you now. Great. So what's this one? Uh, Message quest. Oh, that's the one that you complained about me playing. The one. (laughs) What's message quest? Let's look this up. Message quest is um a kind of mosaic style game. Mm-hmm. You're a herald. You're the laziest son of a bitch herald that ever existed. Oh, this was kind of cute. Yeah, it's really cute. Uh, you're a herald, and your job is to deliver a message to uh, a hero, and you just don't want to do anything. You'd rather go back, sleep, and eat, and just generally not do anything. But for some reason, your order needs you now, and you have to go find the hero. And this was like an adventure game, sort of, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is an adventure game. Puzzle adventure. Puzzle adventure. It's an adventure game, and you do fight, but it's not a conventional turn-based fight. A lot of your skills are... Uh, being useless in some way to confuse and confound your enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, others, and then puzzles usually include the building a bridge, just using puzzle pieces, of course. And as a herald, your powers are supposed to be that you can uh, get a message anywhere. You're like the prehistoric mailman. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's really cute, and you're you just have to do all this clever heraldic stuff to reach the end and help the eventually get to the hero and help the hero save the world. It's a short, cute game. I really liked how it had, like, the Simlish style, like, uh, yes. babbling that you can hear when, uh, although it puts, like, on screen what they're really saying, which, like, makes it easier for localization and all of that, but yeah. uh, the made-up language sounds a lot like kind of Greek or Latin or something like that. Yeah. It's very cute, all these cute little voices. Yeah. And the uh, most of the puzzles and all the puzzles are pretty straightforward. They're not too complicated, but it takes you, but it takes a couple of mi- but it takes a moment just to do them. So it doesn't interrupt the progress too much, but it's enough of a enough of a uh, challenge that there's like, oh, good, I get to do a puzzle now, and you look forward to the puzzles, which is nice. Well, that is nice, and the art style is just awesome. It really mm-hmm. does look like a glass, uh, like a stained glass window or a mosaic. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds really cool. It's beautiful. Yep, and there's, Very cute. Mm-hmm, Although I got really fed up hearing all that friggin' Greek Latin bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and you can pick your dialogue, and you just, mm-hmm. and eventually you ha- your ha- your hapless, your worthless character defeats his lazy self and becomes the mm-hmm. strong herald he was meant to be, hmm. or she, because the way the character is designed is you don't is the gender is ambiguous, which well, is nice. interesting. So, if, if you ever a- asked if you're he or she, you can decide what you are. 
Oh, you did seem to get frustrated with some of the combat, though. It has, like, turn-based kind of JRPG-style Yeah, combat. the combat was annoying, but that was because I had to figure out what combination of skills worked. Because there was when I'm fighting my lazy self, I had to figure out how to uh, actually defeat him because my lazy self was pretty fucking lazy and was not going to give up easily, ironically oh, enough. Oh. <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm looking at one screenshot here. It says... Don't just stand there, sit down on the responsibility stool. <laughs> so just because I see the word stool, I have to say hi to Ben Chandler. Hi, hi Ben. Hi, hi ben. ben. Hi, Benny. Don't pass the stool, Ben. <laughs> um, and finally... Oh, ha, ha, ha. we've been waiting for so long for this. All right, the big one. The big one. The sequel to The Binding of yeah. Isaac Rebirth, Afterbirth. Or the expansion, anyway. Yeah, the expi expansion. Oh, how is it? Because I've been curious about the game. Oh, have you played any of the Binding of Isaac games? Uh, no, I actually haven't. Um, I've been wanting to get them, but it's like every time they are always on sale, I'm always like, "Ah, oh, shit, I don't have enough money to pay to spend on Steam." Oh, you? Uh, I've heard it's phenomenally good on 3DS, actually. Um, yeah, but it's only on new 3DS, and I only have an original 3DS. Oh, there, there we go again with the friggin' forking of the console. That's annoying. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna upgrade pretty soon though. I mean, I I like my 3ds and all, but yeah, I do want to get the new one because I also want to play Xenoblade Chronicles badly, mm -hmm. and I cannot spend the money for the Wii version, but I could probably justify buying it on the 3ds. All right, it's, it's a downloadable game, so I think it's a cheap one too. This one, but uh, yeah, it's like it's the perfect cute. commuting commuting game. I'm sure it's yeah. really cute. It's it's really fun. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like disgusting cute. It's like horrible, gross, grotesque, bloody. Shit smeared, uh, adorable. Yeah. Okay, What's that's really nice about the newest version, too. about the newest expansion for this one, is there's another mode called Greed. Oh, it's so insufferably hard. Oh, but yeah, a new game mode. Well, what, do you want to describe what the regular game is first before you talk about the iteration? Well, most people, I know most of our listeners have heard us talk about The Binding of Isaac, but for those of you who haven't, it's a roguelike top-down, uh, isometric, I would say. Top-down. Top-down roguelike game. Basically, your primary shots are your tears because you're a sad little child whose mother is a rampaging horrible bitch. Yeah, you cry on people to kill them. Yeah. And it's oh, wow. it's very similar in combat style to, like, Legend of Zelda with the top-down real-time combat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and you pick, up, uh, you pick up various objects, and the roguelike aspect is that you never really know what objects you're going to get, and they're each either a, a new ability or a modifier or a passive ability or something mm -hmm. so there are already i don't know how many hundreds of items that you could get and this expansion adds a few hundred more yeah so it, it means that you can play the game like 500 times and have different abilities yeah that, and that actually sounds pretty cool it's fantastic yeah and the, and then the different uh, and then the different abilities you have modify the synergy of your uh, shots right so you might have uh, just regular tiers at one point or you might get something that makes your tears giant ginormous and then you might get another skill that makes you shoot like multiple tears at the same time and they're all these really big tears yeah that's always fun you cry tears that are larger than your whole body <laughs> oh wow poor kid yeah i am so sad they're like literally alligator tears <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're cute yeah. um I'm, I'm gonna probably make one more mention really quickly of something i did start playing yeah it's a bit of a bizarre game but i actually you know i kind of like it um um, little backstory. There was this game called um, LSD Dream Emulator for the PS1 back in Japan. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, the creator, also Nosato, created like that weird like dream-like state where you can walk around and just explore. Yeah, I heard about this. Was it like, <laughs> was this game incomplete or something? Or 
And no, it was complete. It was based off of Dream Journals by one of the designers. Oh, I have heard of this. Yeah. And it was uh, Japan only. It was really bizarre. And basically, it's like, yeah, you walk around like this dream world and just like explore different dreams and states. Mm-hmm. But um, I found like this kind of like spiritual follow up called Executive Towers, which I found on itch.io. That's, the, that's a strange name for a dream follow up. Yeah, Executive Towers. Okay. But um, I'm going to post a link to it so you can take a look at it. It's available on Windows and Mac. And you can either like, you know, download it for free or pay a little bit of something to it. It's kind of the same idea. Like you walk around like a weird dream state and it's like very trippy and bizarre. And it was designed with the Unity engine. And um, I just installed it on my laptop, on my Linux laptop in um, Wine, and it runs perfect. Hmm. Yeah. I also have it on my Mac, but my Mac is a little bit older, so I can't really play it in like high, like maximum graphics quality. This looks really strange. I'd love it to is, see It's this. pretty strange, and the soundtrack is available on Bandcamp, too. Oh, excellent. Mm. Yeah. What the? What are, What am I looking at? This is weird. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's basically pretty, like but another, it's weird. It, it's like an acid trip game. Mm. <laughs> oh, good. So I don't need to be high when I'm playing this. I get the effect without the drug. Nice. Yep. Or, or, or you can add on to it. <laughs> Ooh, right. that would be fun. <laughs> Total mindfuck. <laughs> yeah, it is. Mm. But I, I played it. It was actually a rather interesting like premise. It's just a, a first-person exploration game. You just wander around the world, and it's just like kind of weird and trippy. Like the the premises that you've applied for like this really like high paying executive job and like the weird world that you got to go through to get to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. it's cool though. It is really cool. Neat. Yeah, it looks gorgeous. And I don't think I have any other games I played. Oh, you didn't uh, get around to describing the new game mode. Oh, right, right, right. So, anyways, the the current the uh, the original game mode in the uh, in Afterbirth had normal mm-hmm. and difficult and uh, hardcore or rather. Yeah. Um, uh, nightmare? What's it called? Yeah, just hard mode? I don't yeah, know. And that's mode. just where you start on the first level and you go down to the last level and you beat the yeah. whichever end boss you happen to beat that time. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the difficulty just means uh, the uh, how how frequently you get certain types of drops. They mm-hmm. usually are the hearts, which are your health, your the money, keys, and bombs. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the next mo- the new mode is called greed, and it's more of it's like an arena. An arena. And then more in the theme of, uh, I'm not sure if anyone here besides us, I don't know, has anyone, as uh, if any of the uh, listeners have played Hero Siege? Um, I played oh, yeah. Hero Siege a little bit. Oh, yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. That was kind of similar, right? Where you, yeah. It's like arcade style where you just want to kill the enemies in a mm-hmm. finite area. Mm-hmm. So that's what the new greed mode is like. So you kill the enemies as they come in in waves, and then there's a break between waves where you can go and uh, pick up See if you you pick up your coins and you see if you have enough money and you can go buy some items that can help you uh, be a little stronger or a little more health or better defense. Mm-hmm. And uh, you basically keep pushing these little button when you're ready to continue. And mm-hmm. once you've defeated the boss for that level, you have the option to either do like the, the uh, super boss, which is two of them at the same time, or mm-hmm. to progress. Oh, I, cho- wow. I would choose to do the super boss so I could get the a special room that would either be what they call an angel room where I just go and I pick up a new object or a devil room where I can sacrifice a small amount of my health for a really nice item. Usually something that will uh, give me good defense or increase my damage. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I, you know what? I think, um, I think I'm going to be adding this into my Steam wish list, or I think I did have it on my Steam wish list already. I cannot. Oh, my gosh. Let me see. Let's embarrass ourselves by seeing how much playtime we have, shall we? Yeah, this is a game I play it every morning when I'm on my exercise bike. And if we're watching a movie that doesn't have my full attention, I just play this as well. 
Oh my gosh, I am up to 398 hours of this game. I Holy have, shit. I yes. have 101 hours. This game is just endlessly entertaining. It's like oh. amazing that I just don't get tired of this game. Oh, I still have it on my wish list. I still have um, Binding of Isaac Rebirth on my wish list. Mm. And my, uh, my top list, my top game right now for some reason is Super Meat Boy. Oh, nice. By the same guy. Yep. Edmund McMillan and Team Meat. I, yep. That game was, I didn't get into that. That game was, it was very good and the controls were very precise, but it really made me uh, say a lot of foul language all the time. It's <laughs> it very, very frustrating, it was, but I'm sure it's good. It is frustrating, but the, it, it, the controls are so funny. good. It's kind of funny that I've always said to myself, like, I know I'm enjoying a game when I'm swearing like a sailor. Right. <laughs> and if but, you like um, Meat Boy, there actually is a tribute to Meat Boy in the game where you can pick like the four meat cubes and it makes a little meat man that follows you around and he does damage to the enemies. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. He has references to every game he's ever made in Binding of Isaac. That's awesome. It is cool. And, um, yeah... You know, a lot of the games that I put on my wish list are all, like, you know, carefully selected that they're as cross-platform as possible. At least they're Linux versions. Oh, right. Steam or it's play. something that I could probably run and wine easily. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good thinking. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm going to have to get Binding of Isaac now, and I'm going to have to get Super Meat Boy when it's on sale again. Because, like, I do want to get Super Meat Boy, but $15 is a bit for now. Yeah, I think Binding of Isaac might actually be on sale on the Humble it's, Store. Yeah, it is. It's $9 right now. Oh, there you go. It, I'm sure we'll see it for cheaper in uh, on either the, the holiday sale or the uh, Black Friday sale. Yeah, that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold off for the for the Black Friday sale, and I'm going to hold off for the Christmas sale. Right. But you don't necessarily need the expansion right away because <laughs> I had like almost 500 hours of content. And I don't even have all the achievements. I'm not the kind of guy who tries to get all the achievements, but... Neither am I. Yeah, some some of those achievements you just happen across by luck by getting a combination of items, and that has, a lot of those have not yet occurred for me. So yeah. there's no shortage of content. Like, the funny one, too, like, um, when I was playing Grim Fandango Remastered, like, I didn't even know about half the achievements because they only show you, like, a tiny handful when you initially get it. Right. And all of a sudden, like, I'm doing things during the game that I, you know, you do, you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Like, the way you play the game. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, achievement. Oh, achievement. Wait, I'm getting more achievements? Just mm. from the most mundane of things? Right. That's yeah. actually what happens with the Binding of Isaac. There's a lot of hidden achievement that they don't show you on Steam that you just have to figure that you get oh, yeah. just by performing certain actions in the right order. That's right. Yeah, I guess, like, even like I said, like the most mundane of actions, right? Mm hmm. That's well, funny. I, I especially appreciate that in, in adventure games, though, because I'm the kind of adventure gamer who clicks everything and just looks around and wants to look at. Like read the descriptions of everything and hear all the dialogue options. So yeah, and it's then all, the all of more a sudden fun. an achievement pops up. Yeah, that's all the more fun. Yeah, but it you know what's kind of funny is like I played the uh, the Blackwell games and they're supposed to have achievements and I did not get a single solitary one out of them. Oh, that's weird. That is so weird. Is right. I think I um, sometimes uh, I know the adventure game studio uh, had some issues with that where sometimes you wouldn't get the achievements until you exited the game or restarted it. Uh huh. Um, maybe it didn't trigger some at all though. Probably, Must but be. like like I said, like I'm not really bothered by it, but it's like it was. I found a really, really, really weird thing. Yeah, me too. Yeah, but all the same, though, I'll still play them anyway. Like achievements or not. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm trying to uh, figure so out, by the way, whether I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether Binding of Isaac is available on Linux. It says Windows, Mac, and Steam Play, which I think just means that if you buy it on one platform, you own it on others. Um, if I buy it on my, like, if I buy it on even the, uh, the Steam client for Android, yeah. I, I download it for my Mac. Right. Yeah. But I, I don't mean, see I any mention of Linux. I games on my Mac because I do that for the Telltale games. Right. 
I, yeah. I don't see any mention of Linux though, unfortunately. I don't think it, I don't think it's available on Linux, but um, I I bought I guess I bought the Telltale games when they were on sale, thinking that they were available on Linux, and when I looked, they they weren't available, so I just play them on my Mac. Oh, okay. Well, they do yeah. run natively on Mac at least. Yeah, that's at least a good part about it because I did want to complete um, I did want to play I did want to complete the Strong Bad game. Mm, I, I have to. Yeah, you should get it. It's actually pretty funny, especially if you're a Homestar Runner fan. Oh, I, I didn't really get into Homestar Runner until much later. I do own the games, and I've played, I think, two of them. I owned, I played one on Wii and one on PC, and I like them I, a lot. They're very funny. Yeah, I played four of them on the Wii, and I never got the last on the Wii, so I bought the whole set for the piece for the Mac. Right. And so I'm playing I, them on there. Mm-hmm. And I also have Back to the Future on the PS3, but I also bought them on OS X as well because, hey, they were on sale. Yeah, exactly. They go for sale for so cheap. It's amazing how much content you get for like $4 if you wait for it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I was actually talking to a friend of mine. We were talking about Back to the Future after Back to the Future Day. Right. And he's asking me, so are they ever going to make a fourth movie? And I told him, well, if you get the game, that's your fourth movie. Pretty much, right? Yeah. It is. It's pretty much the. It pretty much is the fourth movie according to even, I think... Um, I think it was Robert Zemeckis who said it was a fourth movie. Oh, you're kidding. Or it was Bob, I think Zemeckis or Gail, one of them said it. Yeah, I think um, the same was supposedly true for a Ghostbusters game that came out in like 2009 or so. Yeah, really? and um, Dan Aykroyd had basically said that was Ghostbusters 3. Yeah, I think Aykroyd and Ramis wrote the, the script for it and everything. They did. Oh, wow, that's great. And um, Bill Murray and Ernie Hudson joined them to play the roles, along with Annie Potts and a lot of the other cast members. That's right. i got to download that again. I think I own that on Steam. I think I actually, no, I think I own that on some platform that doesn't exist anymore, Direct to Drive or something like that. Probably. That was a that was a pretty good game. Pretty it was. Good. It was actually really worth it. I actually played. I actually uh, completed it on a 360. Gun. Uh, Try spelling it correctly. Yeah, you know. How do you spell Ghost again? No, I don't have it. Call of Duty Ghosts. I don't want to play that ever again. <laughs> oh, thank Fuck you. That. that was horrible. Not a Call of Duty fan at all. Oh, I I'm a fan of many of them, but the later in time you get, the worse they get. So I'm not going to buy them anymore. Mm. Well, we're pretty much at the uh, drop dead hour here. <laughs> Um, is there are there any parting words that we uh, ought to be saying about Linux to our fair listeners? Oh, it's not that bad of a desktop system, but it's not for the faint at heart yet. Yeah, that's right. So why don't why don't we uh, advise Nopix or the Ubuntu uh, Live CD just so that people can uh, have a taste yeah. of it without having to format or or uh, do anything permanent? I would recommend Ubuntu over Nopix because Ubuntu is a full-blown desktop. Right. Oh, and I would recommend to you, Robert, to uh, give uh, Mint Linux a try sometime because it's pretty good. Yeah, I'll probably throw it into a VM and see how it is. Try it in a VM. It's a lot less uh, bloaty in terms of the UI than yeah. Uh, Ubuntu. Mm. I'll, yeah, I'm gonna pl- I'll throw it into a VM or a spare box I have. Mm. Yeah. Right on. Um, I guess for parting words, be cool with all with one another. Play more DOS games. Drink more coffee. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, we watched uh, we watched the, the ridiculous, pretty bad uh, sequel to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Bill, Bill and Ted's, Ted's bogus, bogus Adventure. Journey. Bogus Journey. But at least from the there are the words from the first uh, movie, which was "Be excellent to each other and party on, dudes." Party on, dudes. Yeah. <laughs> As said by Abraham Lincoln, I believe at the end. It was. Of course, it the, the that would be totally what he would say. That's right. <laughs> All right. Um, if uh, people want to get in touch with you, Robert, where uh, where can they reach you? Um, Twitter is the best place. Um, my handle is Lambda Calculus, and I'll spell it out. It's L-E-M-E-D-A-C-A-L-C-U-L-U-S. Mm. And um, if you're on Facebook, follow the Nostalgia Road Trip and the Retro VGM Revival Hour, where I do post a hell of a lot of stuff. Oh, great. Send me links to those, if you will, please, and I'll put them in the show notes. <laughs> Definitely will. Awesome. And do you have anything else you want to plug while we still have you on the uh, air? 
Um, I guess I could probably plug um, my writing for Hardcore Gaming 101. And um, I also have one other one that I'm going to start reviving again soon. I have a column on a site called maglomaniac.com mm-hmm. um, called The Vinyl Spinner, where I talk about like oddball records. But oh, I think really? I'm going to revive it and I'm going to actually change the theme up a little bit because I've been listening to so many other things that are not just on vinyl mm. that it's going to be a little bit more of a diverse music entertainment thing. Oh, fantastic. Sounds I definitely got to check that I'm out. I'm going to send over... Um, I'm going to send it over right now so you can put it in the notes. Yeah. Send do. all those links. That would be super. And we'll put them in the, uh, and we'll put them up when we upload the podcast and the show notes. Right, all right on. Well, I'm going to put the search results for Maglomaniac. Sure. And there they are. Okay. We got that. I only, have four, I only have four articles up right now, but I'm going to be making some more soon. Four articles is a good start. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah. I'm going to be writing some more and I'm going to be also working on a couple of other little projects that I'm going to be talking about on Twitter soon. Well, good stuff. I will, yep. I will very um, hotly anticipate that. Yep, and um, I also want to try to get I want to get one of my game design documents into reality. So I'm going to probably be coll- I want to collaborate with everybody, all of our pals on Twitter. Oh, wonderful! Yes, I want to do this. Good stuff. Yeah, very good stuff. Well, I do recommend if you're looking for just something quick to uh, flesh out uh, a, a uh, like a, an interactive uh, test code uh, version of it or something like a storyboard version. Uh, mm-hmm. Check out Twine sometime. Definitely will. Yeah, Twine is a really fun, very simple kind of choose-your-own-adventure mm-hmm. style uh, mm-hmm. environment to write games. It's yeah. And it's nice and easy to pick up. You don't need much experience at all to use it. It's like uh, Wikipedia's uh, markup code, code sort of. Very easy to use. Oh, that's uh, that's really cool, and actually. Oh, it's just so, that easy and very quick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because I was also playing with um, with the interactive fiction uh, language and form. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I was writing a couple of little ideas in that, and that's also really fun to work with, too. Oh, it is. More complex than Twine, but it has more abilities as well. Yeah. I'll send a link over so you can probably put it in the notes. So if anybody wants to check out Inform, it's a great way of writing your own interactive fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's fully it's fully natural language. It's extremely easy to pick up the syntax on. Oh, cool. That's all the better. Yep. So there you are. There's a link for that. You can put it in the notes. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us, Robert. It was a lot of fun to chat with you. It was really fun to chat with you guys, too, and I'd love to do this again sometime. Oh, we would love yeah, to have you We'd love to have you we've, back. We've covered, like, every topic we've ever discussed in the show in this one podcast. <laughs> yeah, it, it kinda, it's kind of like the way that I do it on um, on my main podcast, too. It's kind of like a lot of crazy freewheeling. Oh, glad to hear it. True, but we're talking more about an operating system, so we would be bound to talk about, touch upon uh, previous issues that we t- uh, topics that we've talked about. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, and, you want to yes. take us out? Sure. And for our dear listeners, if you would like to reach us, you can reach us on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com or by email squarefm at demodulated.com or on Twitter. We're at squarewavesfm. That's right. Oh, and we have to say thank you once again to Tomer and to Francisco and to Ryan so, so very much. Thank you guys for writing into us and for the voicemail. Yes, thanks, Love guys. to hear from you guys. All right, with that, uh, go go screw yourselves, you, you bunch of lousy jerks. We love you like crazy. Thanks for listening, and uh, have a good one. All right. Peace Ooh. out, guys. Peace out. Peace bye, out. Bye. Bye. bye.